Hey, Wolfies, are you ready for the bite? I don't give a shit if Pablo Escobar is in the back of that thing. I've still got 20 minutes of music to finish for a very homoerotic scene. All of Derek's answers are like shaking a magic eight ball. It's like, yes, no, probably, ask again tomorrow. <laughs> he said, please, Scott, please. That goes a long way in the werewolf community, Scott. I'm like, man, you basically just rolled up and said, you know what I like? Family. You know what you don't have? Family, because they're dead. On the police report, it would say, uh, cause of death, Victoria Arson Stare. Be like, oh God. Just being able to find so much joy in Teen Wolf. Welcome to Return to Beacon Hills, a Teen Wolf Rewatch podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Calissa Mullis, and I'm joined by Kate Colvin and Will Wallace. Every week, we'll be watching and talking about the hit MTV series one episode at a time. And this week, we're talking about season one, episode three, Pack Mentality. If you're watching Teen Wolf for the first time and you're worried about spoilers, have no fear. This podcast is broken up into two sections, alpha and beta. The beta section is for first timers who are just now finding this awesome series and don't want to be spoiled about what's to come. The second section Alpha is where we go full spoilers and talk about not just the current episode, but the entire Teen Wolf series as well as its place in the fandom. In the show notes of your podcast app of choice, you'll find time codes for the alpha and beta sections. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH Podcast, as well as on Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at return to beacon hills at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us on Patreon at RTBH Podcast. There, our Wolfie patrons will gain access to awesome exclusives like early access to episodes, full moon AMAs, the Beacon Hills Movie Club, where we watch and provide commentary for movies starring the amazing cast of Teen Wolf and featuring the work of our talented crew, as well as guest video interviews and a monthly watch party. So head on over to Patreon slash RTBH Podcast and join the pack. This week's Howl Out goes to Alpha patrons Rachel C. and Kristen Konzelman. Thanks, guys. This week, we watched Season 1, Episode 3 of Teen Wolf, titled Pack Mentality. It was written by Jeff Flaming and directed by Russell Mulcahy. After having a nightmare about killing Allison on a school bus, Scott comes to believe that he actually did attack someone the night before. Not Allison, but a bus driver. In order to protect Allison, Scott doesn't think he should go on that date that they have planned, which unexpectedly becomes a double date with Jackson and Lydia. So Scott goes to Derek to find out what really happened the night before. Derek tells Scott to go back to the bus and let his heightened werewolf senses pull the memories out of his subconscious. Scott does this and believes that it wasn't he who attacked the man on the bus, but Derek. Since it wasn't Scott, he thinks he's probably safe to go out with Allison after all. But on the date, Jackson tells Scott that he's determined to find out what his secret is. At the same time, Derek visits the man who was attacked on the bus and learns that the man somehow knew the Hale family. Unfortunately, the man dies before he can reveal more. Scott, still believing that Derek killed the man on the bus, confronts Derek and they fight it out at the Hale house. Derek wins the fight and tells Scott he wasn't the one who bit him. It was another werewolf, a type called an alpha. And because the alpha bit him, Scott is now a member of that alpha's pack. Our favorite quote from this week's episode comes from a conversation between Styles and Scott, in which Styles speculates that Scott could have killed and eaten a rabbit the night before rather than killing a person. Scott, who is completely appalled, says, raw? And Styles says, this is the favorite quote, 
No, you stop to bake it in a little werewolf oven. Yes, raw. And this week's honorable mention is, it's not like there's a lycanthropy for beginners class. I feel like that sums up the entirety of the first season. Yes. It's just like Scott's beginning plot. Absolutely. That'll be the honorable mention for every episode. Because <laughs> it does seem like this, you know, in the first season, it always, a lot of the storylines are like, God, being a werewolf is hard. Jumping off of our favorite quotes where, you know, Styles speculates that Scott maybe killed a, a rabbit the night before, and that explains all the, the blood on the school bus. This episode opens with a super sexy date between Scott and Allison, where they sneak onto a school bus at night and they're getting kind of cute and flirty and, you know, they're making out. But then claws come out and the fangs come out and Allison sees him as a werewolf for the first time. And it's very scary. And Scott kind of just goes mad and starts throwing uh, bus benches at her and he chases after her and she kicks him back with a lot of force for uh, a teenager. But I mean, as we learn later, she's done gymnastics, so she's got some skills. But then, you know, she races to the front of the bus and she's got some cuts on her. He was kind of swiping at her legs and she tries to squeeze out the, the collapsible door to the bus. But sadly, Scott grabs her and yanks her back in and he kills her. Very brutal. Very brutal. Except he actually didn't because it was all a dream that he had the night before. And what we were seeing was Scott explaining it all to Styles. What did y'all think about this opening? I think it's a fun, sexy opening, which, dear listeners, you will learn very quickly that many episodes of Teen Wolf go from super sexy stuff to super scary stuff at, like, the drop of a hat. Like, that's kind of like the bread and butter of this show, where it's like, ooh, sexy characters getting all sexy. Oh, my God, there's so many teeth and blood. (laughs) Mark me down as scared and horny. There you go. It's... (laughs) Yeah, they they are definitely good at that. I will say, and and it is sexy because those characters have chemistry together. But my first thought, the first time I watched that scene was, you don't think the school bus is sexy, right? I mean, it's the- it's almost. I mean, it is. It, it's preferable, I would say, to a locker room. I heard that a lot of uh, band kids got it on in the back of school buses between trips. But I'm sure that's true. I was not uh, in the band. <laughs> I heard but that I feel too. like that's, that's like a convenience thing, though. That's not because, like, you don't, you're not just, like, sneaking onto the school bus because it's a sexy place. Don't judge it's, his fetishes. That's kink shaming. I'm just saying he's going to get an infection. <laughs> and it's not of a sexual nature. So I think you had a small issue with this scene, didn't you, Will? I did. I think it's a great scene. It's super fun. It's super sexy. It's super scary. But unfortunately, the very last shot of Allison kind of getting thrown against the glass and her face smushing up into it is not scary. It's act- it made me laugh when I rewatched it. And like, and it, it's not just Teen Wolf, like when this happened in this moment that it, it's like in anytime I see someone's face like pressed against glass and it's supposed to be scary, it's never scary to me. It's just not scary at all. And it it just comes across as funny to me. And I feel like the better way to have gone out for this episode would have been to just have a spray of blood across the the glass. What do y'all think? Is that is that shot kind of weird to y'all? Or is it just I I think you're right about that. And mostly I'm just relieved that the issue you had with that scene was not the wolfy sideburns that we're introduced to because (laughs) I found those delightful. I thought that Allison should just be sitting there sort of like just petting it, petting the sides of his face. 
All right. So Scott's telling Styles about this incident, and Styles is, of course, like, oh, no, nothing happened. It was just a, a dream. It was a dream. Nothing bad happened at all. And then they walk back outside the school, and they see that the cops and CSI folks are swarming a school bus that has been practically painted with blood on the inside. And it's like, oh, shit, something bad may have happened. The first Beacon Hills high school crime scene, but not the last. No, many, many, many Beacon Hills crime scenes, also Beacon Hills high school crime scenes. Like so it's many. just any really anything in Beacon Hills. I mean, I feel like by the end of this show, it's just that the cops don't even take like caution tape with them because every place in town just has a roll of caution tape because I mean at some point their number's gonna come up. Uh, I also feel like the setup of the school where they enter in what seems to be the front door and then just walk out the other side. I mean, it's just as nonsense close the rest of Beacon Hills. Like, what yes. is the setup of the school? They it's just a corridor. The and then just... <laughs> <laughs> That's all it is. It's just a corridor. So, okay. Scott can't find Allison and he thinks she's dead. He freaks out, breaks open a locker with his fist. But Allison is fine and the locker belongs to Jackson. Which is hilarious. <laughs> That is one of that is one it of the is best great. just pan over jokes ever, and uh, it's really good, especially at the end where just the lock falls off and all this. It's <laughs> it's just a super funny moment. It's it's just great. And then of course Scott, you know, kind of looks away from Jackson. He has the most adorable derpy face. Just he does because I feel like that adorable. that that moment is so it, it like takes you back to being a teenager for the yeah. sheer like pettiness and childishness, but in a way that's still enjoyable. Absolutely. No, no, no. Absolutely. It's just a wonderful moment. And and again, I think we've mentioned this in previous episodes already, but I mean, uh, Teen Wolf has a lot of strengths, the score, the acting, the action, the cinematography. But I, I also believe that one of the main strengths is just small character moments that just make them completely relatable, you know, because I mean, obviously, the story takes place in a heightened universe and all this with all these spectacular creatures and romances and all this type of stuff where everything's kind of turned up to 11. But then you get just these wonderful little moments, you know, like Scott's derpy face. That's just like, oh, that's right. They're human being. They're just normal in quotes. Can't see me doing quotes on a podcast, but um, just they're normal. Just they're normal people. Yeah, it's great. I love it. I don't know. I'm rambling, but I love it. I think it's just fantastic. So I just love that no one comments on Scott destroying the locker. I, I know there's a crime scene outside, but still, like, that dude just went, like, on demolishing that with his fist. Like, how does no one even, like, turn their head? And poor Jackson, who I feel like thought this year was going to be great, another wonderful year for him, being all hot and popular and rich, that turns out to be the no good, very bad year for Jackson. Poor Jackson is not something I ever <laughs> said through the entirety of watching that show. No, no one cares nope. about Jackson. Well, don't be an asshole and people yeah. will care about you. I mean, it's exactly it's a very simple formula. I assume I don't know math. So, I mean, I don't know what that formula is. <laughs> OK, that was pretty good. That's yeah. pretty good. actually. <laughs> was. That was that was an, a pretty artful self burn. Thank and you. I give you I give you points for it. Thank you very much. All right. So after seeing the police and all the forensics people on the bus, Scott and Styles go to class. This is our first introduction to Harris, the science teacher, who also seems to be one of the biggest tools at the school. He's the Professor Snape of Beacon Hills High. He's just like super done with teaching, I think. It has been since day one. 
We all know that teacher. He became a teacher and literally on the first day he was like, oh, I'm done with this. So, yeah. But if he's this Snape of Beacon Hills High School, does that mean he totally had a thing for Mama McCall at some point? No. That's good. So because Harris is such a tool and clearly doesn't like Scott and Styles, he separates them in class. And when Scott moves to his new seat, he's right in front of Jackson. And of course, Jackson is leering at him the whole time. I'm assuming not because of the locker, but more because he still believes Scott's up to something. That there's no way in the previous two episodes, Scott could have become so good at lacrosse so fast without there being some other factor that he doesn't know about. Which he's not wrong. No, he's not wrong. It's not paranoia if you're right. That's right. Jackson is right all season. Like this isn't one of the, this isn't one of those instances where he just believes something because he's got misinformation or something like that. No, no, he's right the entire time that Scott is technically cheating, not out of his own volition, but he's, something is going on with him. And Scott's like, nope, nothing's going on. But of course that's not true. I don't think we ever get into like the ethics of Scott playing lacrosse. Like, okay, is he going to kill someone's disgust, but not like, should you be playing against other normal teenagers, Scott? Aren't you just cheating? Right. Just it's, give up? That's true. it's like, it's like we had talked about the Incredibles thing, you know, how it's like, right. should you be competing against regular kids who don't have superpowers? That seems unfair. Seems very unfair. Thank goodness lacrosse scholarships aren't really a thing or he could have been depriving someone of one. That's very true. true. Very true. So as Jackson is is leering dangerously at Scott, someone sees some movement outside the window and all the kids, they rush to the window and Scott and everyone else sees the deputies are pushing uh, an unconscious body into an ambulance. And right before it gets in, the guy freaking like wakes up and is screaming from whatever horrible experience he's been through. And Scott freaks out and thinks, I must have attacked this person. It has to have been me. I attacked this guy and almost killed him. And as far as we know, he ain't wrong. So Scott. But also, did he make out with him beforehand? Well, I mean, I hope so. She asks the hard hitting questions. Is it getting all sexy and steamy? Anywho. Yes. Then later in the day, Scott and Styles go to lunch and Scott is still very upset at what's happened and uh he doesn't but then he make... sees allison and it's fine well i mean you know not really you know that's true i was gonna say when you have a crush crushes make everything he, better, he but not murder perked up they're looking all cutesy at each yeah. other he, he does perk up but he's he's still like unsure right about going on the the date yeah, he doesn't know what to do because he's worried about hurting Allison. But then also in that scene, uh, Lydia kind of butts in on everything instead of making it or instead of it being a date between Scott and Allison, it's now a double date with Lydia and Jackson, which sounds awful. It does sound awful. And, you know, Jackson hates Scott and Scott doesn't really seem to have an opinion of Jackson other than he's just a dick. You yeah. know, so I mean, he doesn't really complain about Jackson a lot. Or Which, I, when it comes to Jackson, isn't really an opinion. It's more just an observation. That's true. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's oh, just like, this, th- this guy's a dick. It's yeah, not an exactly. opinion. Someone's like, oh, hey, is that Jackson? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's that dick. You know, it's just, that's just <laughs> right, it. Right. That's just it. So, you know, and I, I do find that interesting that Scott or that Jackson is just an asshole. Like, just he is. your typical bully asshole. Anyway, I was going to say, and I've been wanting to say, um, while talking about Jackson, we're going to have a special episode coming up about the Nancy Holder book, On Fire. It's a Teen Wolf novel, actually the only one that exists, 
Yeah. So on fire starts immediately after um, the events of the tell, but we actually get a lot of Jackson backstory in that Jackson's a big focus in the novel. So we can discuss more about his backstory, even if it's not, even if it's not, yeah, purely Canon (laughs) recognized Canon. Yeah. Jeff Davis recognized (laughs) Canon, which he actually, he called it Canon in an interview. It's just later episodes don't, support that but right. when asked the question he said yes but we do get like a lot of insight into jackson and his adoption and everything in that novel so oh that's so right we're at the lunch which i was gonna oh, say right. like okay jackson is an asshole but i love the eyebrow action he gives lydia whenever she has like slip up of her genius where she says uh cougar is a mountain lion and then he just isn't it like, and then, yeah, she has to add that to be like, what? But he gives her just some great eyebrow action whenever he's like, wait, you know that? The show has a lot of very expressive eyebrows. They do. That's accurate. That's very accurate. We do eyebrow casting. So <laughs> it's fantastic. So, but also in this episode, or not in this episode, also in this scene, it feels like Styles has changed his mind from the previous episodes. What do, yes. what do you think about that? Yeah. At first, you know, in the first, in the pilot, Styles is like, Scott, you are cursed. And in this episode, he's like, Scott, you cannot change your life simply because you're cursed. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so it's like, what happened? I don't feel like there was, I don't feel like there were any events that actually changed his thoughts on this. I feel like it's kind of just classic television writing where a character will change their opinions just for the need of the story. And this right. one, Scott needs someone to push him to go ahead and go on the date and tell him, Hey, it's okay. Or, yeah. or styles is just such a good friend. He's, you know, he's living vicariously through Scott and the fact that he's basically got a girlfriend now and styles doesn't. So he's like, you need to tell me everything. So go on this date and that's going to be awesome. You got to tell me everything. But also I think it's probably more what Clissa said. <laughs> I, I, I agree with Calissa. It didn't feel like there was a specific event that made Styles kind of go, oh no, you you can't rearrange your whole life because of this life-altering thing that happened to you. It's more like in the first couple of episodes, it made sense that Scott wasn't really taking the changes seriously. He wanted to keep doing the things that he wanted to do as a teenage boy. He wanted to go on dates. He wanted to go to parties. He wanted to play on the lacrosse team. And Styles was kind of trying to be a little bit of a mitigating factor saying, or maybe you make the decision that's least likely to end in you murdering someone. And then in this episode, Scott finally starts taking it more seriously because he thinks he might've actually murdered someone and the story needs him to go on the date. And so Styles kind of jumps to the other shoulder, right? And becomes the yes. devil whispering in his yes. ear instead of the angel. Yeah, I, I think it's more of that reasoning. Gotcha. No, I think you are 100% correct. I love Styles in this scene. This might actually be one of my favorite Styles scenes in the first season because I just didn't even know there was such a sarcastic way to eat one's lunch. (laughs) (laughs) The drinking of the water, the eating of the fry. He just has such like sassy attitude while he's doing it and judging everything that's happening here. Yes, he does. And you're right. He doesn't even have to say a word. And also I feel like there's such 
awkward by energy to styles that I really identify with, right? You have him like sitting at the lunch table. He turns to one side, there's a hot girl. He's flustered and doesn't know what to do. He turns to the other side, there's a hot guy. It's Danny. He's flustered and doesn't know what to do. I identify with this on a deep cellular level. It's great. And yeah, Dylan O'Brien is just terrific in the scene. And, and then he it. sort of underscores that by after the scene is over and they're walking in the hall, trying to get Scott to answer him about whether he's attractive to gay guys. I know Scott has a lot of issues going on right now, but he should have answered Styles. The answer is yes. I've been on the internet, so I, I can actually go ahead and validate that for Styles. Ten years later, that little puzzle has finally been solved. <laughs> but that's also, I feel like the the cafeteria scene does kind of showcase Jackson's complete lack of empathy for other people because yes. they're they're trying to have a semi-serious discussion about a bus driver that was brutally attacked. And he's like, oh, I hate this conversation. He says he's like <laughs> probably a homeless tweaker who's going to die anyway. <laughs> Oh my God, that's right. I forgot the actual line of dialogue. Thank you. I've got it right now. It was somehow worse than I remembered. They break out their like old school, like Sony Erickson to like (laughs) show the clip. So Kate, you mentioned in this scene where Lydia kind of hides her knowledge. Why do you think she's doing that? I mean, because this is like our second example of Lydia clearly being smart. Why do you think she's playing that off? And even Allison mentions it later on later in, in, in episode. this episode. You know, yeah. why, why is she hiding? I mean, why would you hide that? I think Lydia thinks very strategically. I think she she thinks in terms of what is going to get me ahead. And I think, unfortunately, her concept of what's going to get her ahead is Getting attaching... Ahead. Yeah, actually, <laughs> is attaching her herself to a man who's going to get ahead. She sincerely thinks that that is actually her best bet. I think she really believes that mm. at this point in the show. Yeah. I think later she comes to have enough confidence in herself that she thinks that she can get where she wants to go on her own merits. I mean, she knows that she's smart, but I think that yeah. she thinks that she can't get what she wants by being smart. Hmm. Okay. That's or at least b- not by being openly smart. Yeah. And I think Beacon Hills is a place where homophobia doesn't exist. I don't think it's a place where sexism doesn't exist. I think it's just the real world in that regard. Yeah. And I think, you know, that she thinks like no one likes a know-it-all. I think that's what she thinks. Hmm. Okay. I mean, how often do guys get called know-it-alls compared to girls? Really? I guess never, probably. Almost never. Yeah. It's just, it's it's like one of those secretly gendered terms where right. there's like nothing gendered about the words themselves, but it's like still just kind of only applied to girls. And I, I feel like that's probably what it was. I feel like baby Lydia was also a genius. Right. And she probably got called a know-it-all a bunch. And then she was like, and she learned because she's smart. And she came to a logical conclusion, right? She deduced, okay, this is not the way to get ahead. People are not going to respect me because I know what I'm talking about. They're going to respect me when I attach myself to someone who demands respect. And that person is not me. Gotcha. Well, it's very sad that she believes that, unfortunately. And I look forward to watching this character grow. And hopefully she breaks out of that. That would be great. Well, and that's something we'll see a little bit in the tell, right? When one of her teachers is telling her parents, 
she's a genius. I think she might be a genius. I'd like to get her IQ tested. And her parents are so busy, like bickering yeah, and talking bickering, about yeah. how, oh, you know, we, we probably like made a mistake by asking her to choose who she wants to live with or whatever. They're, they're, they're giving themselves a lot of credit for influencing her life when clearly they're pretty self-obsessed. Yeah. And meanwhile, Lydia is dealing with a lot of things that they have no idea about because right. by that time she's, she's seen some shit. <laughs> That's right. By that point, the video store has already happened. That's that right, episode, right. right? That's that exactly. teaser of that episode. So, right. yeah. So yeah, I, I think that like the way her parents talk about her kind of reinforces that that theory about why she hides her intelligence. That makes sense. And after school, Scott goes to work at the Beacon Hills Animal Clinic where we meet his boss for the first time, Deaton, played by Seth Gilliam. And at work, they have a visit from Sheriff Stalinsky and... Looking like a badass, by the way. Oh, absolutely. That That's just the thing. Like that, you know, Scott rolls in into work and he's like, oh God, I'm sorry I'm late. And Deaton's like, calm down, buddy. And then, you know, Scott's getting ready and he sees, you know, Sheriff Stalinsky kind of slide into frame outside this door. He looks like a total badass. like just And he like says part of a line and like takes his sunglasses off. I mean, really just nails... Every bit of that entrance. He David shows the hell out of it. So <laughs> yeah. And but I don't know about y'all. I mean, y'all, y'all are so much younger than I am. Y'all were probably three or four when this movie came out. But 1995, a movie called Mortal Kombat came out. I was five. Start. My God. <laughs> How old were you, Will? I was 38, okay. <laughs> but, uh, uh, no, uh, Grandpa no. Will. <laughs> Grandpa Will, thank God I just look younger than I am. But um, no, and Lyndon Ashby is in Mortal Kombat. He plays Johnny Cage. And so anytime I see Lyndon Ashby wearing sunglasses, I'm like, Johnny Cage has arrived. You know, and in that scene, when he just kind of like rolls up and, you know, he's outside the door, he looks just like Johnny Cage from that movie. And it always makes me so happy. And, you know, Scott sees him looking like a total badass. He's like, oh, my God, the jig is up. Somehow, something's been figured out and and Stalinsky's here for me but of course you know Stalinsky comes in he's got an adorable dog with him he's got like a little bandage on his hey, paw that's a professional doggo that's a canine unit it's a canine unit doggo that that, that doggo has been to police academy that exactly. doggo has passed the exams Absolutely. that doggo is <laughs> do you think those exams were rough Oh, hey, that's pretty good. Hey, thank you thank you but Stalinsky isn't there for Scott he's there to ask Deaton for I guess a professional courtesy because apparently they're not getting much information on what possibly attacked the bus driver. And so he asked Deaton to just kind of give him his honest opinion about it. And, you know, Deaton says that he's not really much of an expert, although he is a veterinarian. Okay. I think he means in terms of forensics. Yes. Don't know what, well, I mean, people don't come in with animal bites. Like if you get bit by a, like anything, you're not going to go. Yeah, you're not going to go to the vet and say, "Hey, that's true." What animal was? <laughs> no, true. you're going to go to the doctor. <laughs> that's true. But you know, Deaton looks over the photographs of the wounds on the bus driver, and he suggests that maybe it's a mountain lion, but also it could have been a wolf. You know, Scott mentions that there haven't been any wolves in California for a long time, and that's because Styles gave him that information. Yes, that's because right. Styles gave you that information two episodes ago. But, you know, Deaton agrees with him that there aren't any known wolves in California. But those animals are migratory and, you know, they can be drawn to different places, even other states, by prey or memories, which it seems to be a shock to Scott. But I'm not really sure why, because, I mean, everyone knows animals have memories. I know, know? that was so funny. Especially He's like, like dogs. wait, 
animals have memories? I was like, yes, girl, have you never had a pet? The goldfish when I flushed it down the toilet. (laughs) Oh, no. Sad. Sad. Oh, my God. But, I mean, like. I'm just trying to give Scott a tragic backstory to keep up with Jackson's tragic backstory. He does have a tragic backstory. We'll get to it later. Yeah, we'll get to that later. But, you know, I mean, yes, of course, dogs and theoretically their cousins, wolves, have memories. Haven't you ever, like, trained a dog to do something that. No, they just, they, they just memento every scene. No, that's me. Just yeah, mementoing that's all the time. Yeah. But um, yes, and so... Sorry, uh, Grandpa Will. Thank you. Oh, Grandpa Will. I'm so old. I was born in the far-off year of 1982. <laughs> <laughs> we had wondrous technology back then. Cassette players. <laughs> Did you and... ever play the E.T. game, Grandpa? No, they all ended up in a landfill. <laughs> We also had these amazing technology called the laser discs. Let me tell you about those. No, but in the scene, Scott learning about the memories is kind of a trigger because he's having these memories about uh, a potential attack from the night before. So after this, he goes scene, to talk to Derek, right? No. Um, well, yes. First, we have a cop that goes to the Hale House, and Derek oh, has yeah. to like yes. give some special blue eyes to the canine unit there to make it shut up. Oh, that poor dog. Hey, don't dark that I'm in the house. So Scott does go to see his mom to try and get the keys for his date. But of course, he's not having it. And then right before Scott leaves, he catches a scent. And he goes into one of the recovery rooms at the hospital where he finds the bus driver recovering from his awful attack that must have been Scott's, right? And then while Scott's in there kind of just looking at the guy in, in shock that this is what he did, the guy comes to and sees him and starts to lose his mind, which clearly means it's a Scott... tagline for season three. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. That's right. Lose your mind. Lose your mind. No. Okay. Love, be afraid. Trust the instinct. This might hurt. Lose your mind. Can't go back. Watch your pack to hell and back. And then just the final season. Wait, what, what, what was the, what was right before watch your pack? Can't go back. Can't go back. Watch your pack to hell and back. Yes. That's funny. That's Went through a, a rhyming bit, phase. That's like susicle. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is. It's great. This might hurt is how I felt about everything regarding Teen Wolf. Ouch. No, this might hurt was like in my emotions. They hurt my emotions because oh. I cared oh, okay. about the characters and they're, they're like suffering. You know, suffering. It's, o- so. it's okay, Calissa. We're only two, three episodes in. Nothing bad will ever happen to any of these characters. Except for Scott, who thinks everything bad that's happened to him is Derek's fault. He always sort of approaches things in a very confrontational manner. He comes in assuming that he knows that Derek did something. Like, there's never a scene where Scott is like, Derek, did you do this? And Derek is like, yes, or I'm not telling you, or, you know, whatever. He just always comes in yelling, and I feel like Derek immediately gets defensive. I can see that. And it might have played differently if Scott ever showed up and was like, so this shitty thing happened, was it you? And if Derek was like, no, that conversation would be very different, I feel like. Like, Derek doesn't lie to Scott. Scott lies to Derek. Scott does, he does everything with Derek pretty accusatorily, but at least in the scene, Derek gives him some good advice, which is, you know, hey, you can't remember what happened, then go back to the go back to the crime scene and let your heightened werewolf senses do the remembering for you. Smell a crime scene and touch things, and those memories should be pulled from your subconscious. And sounds like pretty good advice. So Scott and Styles take it and they go back to the bus, you know, the crime scene at the school, which 
come on, I feel like that should be like at an impound lot somewhere. It should definitely be handled better. That guy was on vacation. But Scott goes to the bus and he gets on it and he starts, you know, letting his werewolf senses do the remembering for him. And he remembers being there and he remembers the bus driver being there and the bus driver was being attacked by Derek, he believes. So unfortunately, Scott and Styles uh, get run off. So Scott can't really remember anymore. They get run off by a security guard. But Scott. Well, what, belie- so sorry, but to to describe the scene of what he sees, he sees a werewolf that's not himself, Scott. Right. Uh, with glowing red eyes attacking him. He then concludes that this must be Derek. So Scott sees a different werewolf that's not himself and thinks there are probably only two werewolves in the world. Therefore, that is Derek. Despite yeah. Derek saying the thing about the kind that have been hunting us for centuries. And unless he's 300 years old, that means that there are other werewolves in the that's world. very true. Also, I'm not sure why he would give Scott this really helpful advice on how to remember if his whole plan is just for Scott to remember that it was him. Yeah. If that was his plan, he could have just said it was me. That's true. But Styles does have a theory about this, that maybe Derek wanted him, him being Scott, to kill the bus driver. They wanted them to do it together as some kind of ritual. But Styles says, well, why would he make you remember him trying to kill this guy. And maybe he wanted it to be like a shared kill between these two werewolves. Yeah, I I actually, I didn't understand that theory though, because what does that have to do with why? Because if his whole point is to get that to happen, why wouldn't he, when Scott came to him, have been like, yeah, it was me. I bit you. I want us to kill together. Let's do it. I I feel like this is in service of the, the writers know that there's a reveal coming. And not letting, so it's it's like they're building to a reveal, but that means characters can't ask normal questions or, you know, information has to be withheld in order to get a reveal later on. Granted, it is an amazing reveal, but yes. so it means these characters have to not actually act like human beings in a couple of scenes just so that we can get that reveal. But in defense of the writing, I would say that Scott latches on to really anything that will allow him to go on a date with Allison. So mm. even though it doesn't really make sense that Derek would want him to go remember Derek attacking someone when he could have just said, I totally attacked that dude. I wanted us to kill him together so we could be werewolf bloody bros or something <laughs> like that. But, you know, Scott jumps at that because it's a theory that means he's not the person who did the attacking, which means he's not dangerous, which means he's not dangerous to Allison. So therefore they can go on their date. Mm-hmm. So that, would that not be the same if it was a different wolf that's not Derek? Yes, but I guess since I, I, I'm guessing just because Derek is the only other wolf that Scott knows that in this whole thing, because it he lets does, him close the book on it, it lets him of. close the book on it. So, you know, because as far as he knows and believes Derek is the one who bit him. So why would there be another wolf in this situation? Because, again, we're not going to get that reveal until the very end, which is still a great, awesome reveal. But Scott is super happy and he's totally going to go on that date with Allison and unfortunately Lydia and Jackson, but you know, Allison be there. So it's going to be great. And that, that reminds me, do, do these teenagers not know about the term double date? Cause they spend the whole episode talking about group dates. Y'all it, it's not a group date. It's a, it's a double date. We have a term for this. Yes. I'm so confused that these children have never heard this expression. But at least the scene makes bowling look kind of fun. You know, Scott and Allison, 
Lydia and Jackson. They're mostly having a good time, although Scott is very concerned about his bowling prowess after having made a very mighty statement at lunch that he's a great bowler, even though he hasn't been bowling since he was eight. So yeah, he's not really looking forward to this and we can all see why because Allison's a great bowler. Lydia turns out to be a great bowler and Jackson's a great bowler. Scott, on the other hand, not so much any of those words. And (laughs) um, yeah, so he's not having a really great time at the start of things. Yes. Because every time he throws a gutter ball, Jackson, who is, and this is true, a dick, <laughs> like just is immediately like, oh, you suck, McCall. And really just generally makes it difficult to uh, to ball for love of the game. Yes, no, absolutely. But a little bit later, Allison gives him some interesting advice. So it's not really so much love of the game driving him so much as picturing her naked boobs. Love of the boobs. Love of love of boobs. And then all of a sudden he becomes a fantastic bowler. So I mean, yeah. okay, but in his defense, boobs are dope. Boobs are pretty great. So yeah, I mean, that is a scientific fact. I, I I have to say about that. I am really impressed with Allison's game. Like that was a bold move. Oh yeah. I would never have had that kind of confidence as a teenager. Yeah, I, very I was bold. just like, okay, Allison. Yeah. She just gets in there like, yeah, picture me naked. Like, and this is like their, what? First date. First, like not Official, immediately aborted yeah. date. Exactly. So, so yeah. I, I was impressed. That's, that's what I'm saying. They've only known each other for like three days. So yeah, she's got, is, she's got game. Great. She does have game. She does have game and good for her. You know I mean? Yeah. She's got the confidence, you know what yeah. I mean? I feel like anyone born into the Argent family is just going to have confidence because dad's got a lot of confidence. We've met mom briefly. She seems like she has a lot of confidence. Mm-hmm. So why not? Allison knows what she wants and it's fantastic. So, you know, while the double dates happening, Derek's uh, at the gas station gassing up his awesome looking black Camaro when he's approached by Argent and a couple of hunters and Argent much like Jackson is a real dick in this scene just a real real dick in this scene and it's upsetting because he seems like a genuinely nice guy when he's not shooting people yeah he's totally talking about how he's gonna protect his family at all costs and it's kind of like what drives him but unfortunately Derek doesn't really know what that's about anymore because all of his family's dead and it's just like Chris it is horrible you could have just been like hey don't don't around in Beacon Hills please that would have been it we already know that in werewolf culture please goes a long way it does so it's you know he could have just been polite about it but he's kind of a dick he's talking about you know like you clearly care about this car you want to take care of the things you care about I, I'll, I'll just like euphemistic speak i'm like man you basically just rolled up and said you know what i like family you know what you don't have family because they're dead <laughs> yeah good times like Bro. honestly if you're gonna roll up and be that cruel just dispense with the euphemisms just yeah. just be open about just what an awful thing you're going to say to someone but then I we would agree. get the most intimidating windshield wiping ever seen on television. <laughs> that yes. is true. Everything, and what a loss that would have been. Yeah. <laughs> Everything Argent does is very intimidating and deliberate. He doesn't do anything without putting a lot of thought into it. And hot. Very hot. He's a very handsome gentleman. But, you know, 
Arjun's being a total dick. And then when he's leaving, of course, you know, Derek has to like, just kind of get it in there a little bit too. And he turns into a dick and he tells Arjun that he forgot to change the oil on his car, which was a good line and not too shabby at all. It's pretty good. Does it check the oil or change the oil? It was change the oil. Yes. You know, it was check check the oil, you know, still a good line. Still good. It was Just good. throwing yeah, it back it in Arjun's face. He's like, oh, is this the game we're playing? And Arjun's like, no, this is the game we're playing. And then his punk little hunter friend like breaks his car window. His henchman. His henchman. Yeah. His henchman his number henchman, one. His henchman number one just breaks that window like a total tool. And that totally sucks. But I do, <laughs> I do honestly wish we could have just had a scene where we saw Derek angrily vacuuming glass out of his car. <laughs> it would have been really funny. I mean, it would have been sad. But it still would have been just angrily vacuuming his car. I'm making vacuuming motions. Y'all can't see what I'm doing here. But um, <laughs> that that would have been great. You that, know, that would have been great. Just doing that, you know. And I feel like that probably happens to him a lot. So he like pops his trunk and there's like a whole new window that he just puts in. He just got like a whole pile of them because he's like, this is not the first time it's happened. So yeah, Aww. that would have been funny. It would. I I'm think sad. that would have been funny. Sad. But it also it it, w- it would have been funny, and it definitely plays into my my love of, uh, or, or my desire to see the scenes between the scenes, like the, the boring things between the big marquee fights and stuff. Like, yeah, I kind of want to see Derek vacuum broken glass out of his beautiful Camaro. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Also, I want to see one of them brushing their fangs. Oh, I just, you know what I mean? I want to see one of them brushing their fangs. Yeah. Just getting in there. Yeah. That would be fun. That would be really fun. Speaking of fun, back at the bowling alley, uh, everyone seems to be having a great time except for Jackson because he is no longer the best bowler out of the four on this double date. And Allison and Scott win the game and it totally pisses Jackson off. And, and But before that, there's actually a moment where Lydia asks Scott if you know he'll give her some pointers on how to throw the ball right. And he's like, uh, no, you're totally awesome on your own because it's very awkward. He doesn't want to be part of this awkwardness. So Lydia, you know, throws the ball on her own and does fantastically. And, you know, Allison kind of pulls her aside and was like, hey, you don't have to pretend to suck. And Lydia says, I do plenty of sucking just for his benefit. And I am just amazed that they got that line past the MTV censors. Like, that is yeah. what I cannot believe. Honestly, that line and the coin slot line, which we have yet to mention from this episode, were shocking to me on rewatch. I cannot remember what my original thoughts were on it back in 2011, because um, I'm very old and my memory's fading. But <laughs> on rewatch, I was like, Jesus Christ. Well, I think MTV was, <laughs> MTV was pushing the U.S. remake of Skins around the same time, like right. Teen Wolf was on air, and everyone was just so upset about Skins. No one was paying any attention to what was happening on Teen right. Wolf. It, it kind true. of went under the radar because they were so busy being like, oh, Skins has so much sex and stuff. And they're teenagers. And what? They probably were just like, well, that one's about werewolves, so we shouldn't worry about that Who one. Who cares? And, and as a result, they were able to get this like fantastic, like barely... Uh, barely veiled sexual commentary here. Yeah. Scott's feeling pretty fantastic. So he approaches Jackson and tries to bury the hatchet with him. He tells him, look, man, we don't, we don't gotta be enemies. And Jackson said he'd bury that hatchet right in Scott's back. Absolutely. And, and Scott, no, no, Jackson says something. I don't remember exactly what he says. What does he say? It's something like, 
it's not that I don't like you. It's that you're cheating. Isn't it something like that? Cause he, I remember he says something along the lines of, it's not that I don't like you. I just, you're cheating. You are cheating at this thing that I work hard at and you're cheating and I'm going to find out your secret. And I bet you don't want Allison to know that secret. And it's a, that's a fantastic scene. Just, you know, uh, Jackson playing the pinball and he looks back and there's Allison with Lydia and he's like, and I bet you don't want her to know either. And it's just like, oh shit. You know, he's just playing pinball with Scott's balls. Oh boy. He (laughs) is. He is. And it's a great, I feel like that's a great declaration moment, you know, where you have in a story where you just kind of get a piece of information or something where it's kind of like the gauntlet is laid down and it's like, Mm -hmm. this thing cannot happen, but you're like, well, it's a story. So it's probably going to happen. Right. (laughs) You know, because that's where all the best drama is going to come from. And so for me, I remember the first time watching this distinctly and I mentioned it to Jeff. Oh God, when was it? I think it was right when I was right when I became a, the writer assistant, we were talking about something that I, I referenced this moment where I was like, that's a countdown. Like we are counting down the minute until she finds out that Scott's a werewolf. So it's, it's just great werewolf drama. Of course, while all this is happening, Derek has craftily snuck, 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 broken and entered <laughs> into. So while all this is happening, Derek has gone to the hospital and he's in the room of the bus driver who was attacked and with his animal magnetism tells him to wake up from unconsciousness. I buy that. He is just like, wake up. And the guy like is unconscious and wakes up. And I'm just like, damn, Derek, that is so awesome. You know, and he tries to question the guy which is very interesting because he's questioning the person he supposedly attacked on the bus. So I'm feeling like maybe we don't have all the information here that Scott believes he has, but he tries to talk to the to the bus driver and the bus driver says he's sorry. And he mentions the Hale family name. And of course, Derek's like, how do you, how do you know me? How do you know that name? And the bus driver- eyebrows, man. yes yes and the bus driver just keeps saying i'm sorry i'm sorry and he dies of guilt he just like his heart gives out from guilt but guilt over what you know so like what what's happening here and what does it have to do with the hale family and but of course he dies so we don't get any more information so i guess we're just gonna have to bide our time on learning more there but I, the one thing, I mean, and the scene was totally cute. And and then uh, Argent seeing, seeing their kiss was totally creepy and kind of mysterious. But the one takeaway I took from it was that Allison earlier in the episode snuck out of the house. By you parkouring. Know, like yeah. parkouring. Like she flips in one of the first of many unnecessary flips on this show. <laughs> so many unnecessary flips, guys. I feel like that should be a drinking game that anytime there are unnecessary flips, you just take a drink. And that's how someone dies from this. Yeah, film. someone will die really fast. But um, yeah, she snuck out of her room and then just waltzed right in the front door. And I was like, yeah. girl, have you never snuck out of your house before? I mean, I we have established in previous episodes that she's a very good daughter and she and her family get along very well and she's never been grounded and stuff like this. And it's just like, you clearly don't know what you're doing here. Yeah. She forgot, just, like by the end of the date, she'd already forgotten uh, that she- forgotten what she was she just such done. a great date. She just, it yeah, was a fantastic not. date. I just feel like she went in the door and her mom is just standing there and she was like, oh, that's right. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's and it's Edie Mays who is 
very intimidating. Very yes. intimidating. So very I, I would be like, she's a sweetheart in person. Total but, sweetheart. Right, 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 right. But Total on the, show, the, the character it's though intense. Yes. is like, if she if she gave me that death glare, I I would absolutely be cowed. Like, yes, they would on my it on is my so effective on the police report. It would say uh, cause of death. Victoria Argent stare, be like, oh God, we got it. Oh, that's like, awful. We understand. We, we understand. get it. That's really rough. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, I think we mentioned this before that like she and Argent are like this power couple that are just like super intense people who had like a super intense child, sort of, who's going to be learning all that intensity. All right. Well, we are heading right into the end guys. So after his date, Scott goes home where Styles has nearly been brained by Mama McCall with a baseball bat. <laughs> because he just keeps climbing through open windows instead of going through the front door. Uh, so I just, can I say how much I love that the baseball bat travels between characters and the pilot. It's Scott using it whenever he hears a noise at night. This one's Mama McCall. And later on in the show, we get to see Styles brandishing that baseball bat. It's just fun. It is great. It does kind of change hands throughout the course of the series. And it's fantastic. Yeah. It's, They're the sisterhood of the traveling baseball bat. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Scott gets home after his date and he's super happy, but then he gets super bummed because Styles tells him that the bus driver succumbed to his wounds and succumb means dies, folk. folks, <laughs> because Scott didn't really pick up on that. But it's uh, an SAT word. He'll, he'll get, oh, he'll, he'll get there. Yeah, yeah. No, he'll, he'll get there. <laughs> so Scott believes that Derek killed the bus driver and he tears off into the night and storms the hail house to confront Derek. And he tells Derek that he believes he killed the bus driver and that he killed his sister. But then uh, Derek jumps out and throws Scott down a giant set of stairs. And then in a really cool move, jumps down into like a superhero pose. It's fantastic. And he says he didn't kill them, but of course Scott's not having it. So he throws Derek through a wall in the house. And that takes us into our very first Teen Wolf werewolf fight on the show. And it's just spectacular to watch. One of the things, dear listeners, that you're going to learn watching this show is that we have a lot of werewolf fights on this show. And they are all awesome. They're all shot beautifully. Our stunt teams were always amazing. And some of the stunts in this episode, and you'll see in later episodes, look like they really, really hurt. You know, just people getting thrown around like ragdolls. And oh my God, it just looks so tough. But we also get in this scene, Derek Hale's first transformation. Kate, you want to tell us about that? Yeah, it. he, um, okay, well, first of all, Scott throws him into a wall. Somehow he's not even mad that Scott has just destroyed what has to be the Hale house's last load bearing wall. Yes. Um, but he gets up and says, that was cute. Yep. And then he shrugs off the jacket. Oh, it's so, it's so cool. It is very, it's very cool. It's super effective. And then he walks behind this sort of blurred glass window while he's transforming. It looks beautiful. It looks so artful. And it's really practical because, you know, we've talked a little bit before about the budget of Teen Wolf. MTV was not used to doing scripted TV. It was used to doing reality TV, which is a lot cheaper. So Teen Wolf never had much money to work with. And I feel like that shot is such a great example of the directors and the DPs, directors of photography of Teen Wolf coming up with these really elegant 
solutions for making something look gorgeous without spending money. So instead of having like a CGI transformation where it goes from, you know, Derek Hale's regular human face to his shifted werewolf face, you really are only seeing like the broad strokes of the transformation through this window. It's almost like um, expressionist looking and it looks gorgeous. It does. And then they fight. And then they fight. And it's pretty, pretty awesome to watch. And again, this is the first of many fights on Teen Wolf. And and it's it's so great because like when I was watching it, I was like, oh, this fight is is fantastic. But also another part of me was like, oh, it's so quaint. This little fight <laughs> between these characters. Because listeners, we we go to some crazy places with fights later on in the show. This, this isn't a spoiler, but it's just the fights just get bigger and better with every single season. And they become a lot more dramatic and more emotional and it's just so interesting to see that in season one, episode three was when we get our first fight. And it's just, it's just great. I can't wait for all of you to see what comes next because they just get better and better with each, uh, with each passing episode and each passing season. It's just fantastic. This fight pretty much only takes place because Derek woke up on the douche side of the bed that morning. Like you would too, if you woke up in your burnt down house that your family died in. Well, the douche side of the bed is the only one that survived the fire. So, I mean, that's the side. Yeah. So, no, yeah. I mean, yeah. this is this is all very true. But I just feel like Derek really only has this fight because he needs to blow off some steam. Also, yes. Also, they only really have this fight because this is episode three, and Derek at any time could have been like, I didn't bite you, Scott. Yeah, he that doesn't, was not me. Derek doesn't talk so good. He does he, not talk so good at times. Like- <laughs> So he, he gives like very like short one word answers a lot. He's like that person who like only will text you back the one word and you're like, oh my God, are they mad at me? All of, like, all of his responses are uh, the text equivalent of K. Yeah. Yes. So, yes. so yeah, but you know. Put you a know. period on it just to really <laughs> emphasize. Oh, but I will it. say, uh, as I said before, if Scott had come in and said, did you bite me? He would have said, No. Because that's that's how the conversation on the porch goes, right? It's he very just true. asks him a question. Derek gives a clear, concise answer, a clear, concise, and honest answer. Yeah. But Scott Scott doesn't communicate that way with Derek, and Derek doesn't respond well to the way that he communicates <laughs> to the way that Scott communicates with him. Derek Absolutely. is like, just ask me a f- question. Yeah. Like, quit coming in here just, like, throwing accusations around based on nothing other than that, like, I swooped in and saved you from some hunters and, like, stopped you from, you know, clawing up your girlfriend. And suddenly everything, everything that goes wrong in Beacon Hills is my fault. You're being a a little werewolf dick, Scott. (laughs) Have you tried saying please? It's very meaningful to my people. (laughs) Yes, yes, it is. So this is quite the revelation. For Scott and the audience, I mean, we've, for three episodes, we've been acting under, you know, we've been, we've been believing that it was Derek who bit Scott. But what we learn here at the end of episode one of three is that Derek, in fact, did not bite Scott. Calissa, who, who bit Scott? Ooh, you'll have to stay tuned and find out who the alpha is, because this is where Derek reveals that only an alpha can bite someone and turn them into a werewolf. And as we pull back from the Hale house, we see glowing red eyes watching from the dark woods. And this has to be the alpha. Has to be. This is one of my absolute favorite shots from the entire series, because I clearly remember watching this the first time around back in 2011. It being revealed that Derek didn't bite 
Scott, was it super like a super big revelation to me? Cause I kind of felt like that's probably what it was going yeah. to be, you know, cause Derek hasn't been acting villainous. He's just been acting douchey again, because the douche side of the bed was the only part that survived the fire. But so that wasn't a big revelation to me, but what was the revelation was this dramatic pullback out of the house to reveal glowing red eyes in the woods. I did not expect that to happen. And I remember just on my couch, just leaning forward, be like, what? Oh my God, there it is. You know, and it's fantastic. And you just see these great glowing eyes and you hear a growl and then it just cuts to black and that's the end of it. And it's just that, like, that's how we find sh-. out that werewolves are color coded. That's right. Yes. yes. Well, no. Not really, because we've seen Derek's blue eyes before, and we've seen Scott's yellow eyes. We see Derek's blue eyes in this episode. That's right. That's true. But we didn't know that there are, we we don't know until this conversation that there are different types of werewolves. That's right. There could have been various explanations for why one has blue and one has yellow. But when we see the red eyes, I feel like that's the clearest sign that like the red eyes are the alpha. Therefore, the eye colors do have a meaning. It's not just like genetically I have blue human eyes and yellow werewolf eyes. Yeah. It's, there's there's a significance to it. Right. Yeah. There's some kind of strata. Hierarchy. Hierarchy to werewolves. I think we skipped over. Derek explained in this episode that Derek and Scott are betas. So yes. even yes. though Okay, really they're omegas, but omegas are not discussed yet. So. Right. De- well, we have to wait Der- another season Derek- for that. Derek is an Omega. Technically speaking, Scott at this point is a beta because he hasn't fully like rejected the pack bond exactly. because he, do- yeah. he doesn't know how to. Yeah. He, he clearly wants to, but he doesn't know how to break this connection. So There's not a button there to just click no to the invite. Right. He, he can't just swipe like, like, no, thanks, Alpha. <laughs> I'm not feeling can this. Can I swipe left on this Alpha? Yeah. Is that what I can do here? That's like, he's, this, this Alpha is not for me. He seems yeah. to be into like, claw and throats and stuff but yeah technically that was when i rewatched it i was like well technically baby girl you're an omega but you're right about scott that's right no it's very interesting because what we get in this episode i mean we get two great pieces of information the first great piece of information is that derek didn't bite scott that there's another wolf in this story called an alpha and that alphas can turn people with bite so that's cool also i want to say we don't learn it in this episode, but I think it's the first instance of it where an alpha's howl can cause the shift. Because right. when Scott's remember, yes. when Scott, it shows Scott dream asleep and he's having a restless sleep. And then we hear the howl and he wakes up shifted. Mm-hmm. And so the alpha can cause the shift. So that's implied in this episode, but we don't actually get that information, I think, until like two episodes from now. That's a good point. I think. But it is interesting that that, that was seeded in earlier in the season that this that there's this power that an alpha has that he can bring on the shift but the second piece of information we get is that there's a hierarchy among wolves that it's not just uh you know just werewolves freewheeling about just being werewolves and all this type of stuff (laughs) it's like no 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 there's there's a hierarchy and that there are i guess leaders maybe that's the right word i'm not sure but there's an alpha you know so that person is definitely top of the pyramid so i'm very curious to see What's going to happen in the next episodes now that we have a third wolf in the mix? Up until this point, we had two and a half. And oh, oh. that's oh me. my god! <laughs> well, you should feel bad about that joke. That's 
dark. Uh, I thought it was funny, but up until this point, we've had two wolves, Scott and Derek, and now we have a new player in this game, and clearly this is going to be a much more powerful wolf than Who we've is seen a, before. The alpha. <laughs> yes, and that's what and that's what it's going to be. You know, I think moving forward is now who is the alpha. Yeah, so no, I'm very excited to, to see what happens moving forward now that we have an alpha in the mix. And I'm guessing we're going to have to figure out who the alpha is. So what do you all think? About who the alpha is? Or oh, is no, our just, story? <laughs> just move the story moving forward now that we have this new piece of information. I was like, yeah, duh. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Because it's, I just felt like, okay, I, well, you know, Scott's a teenager and like, you know. I remember enough about being a teenager to be really happy that no one was filming me and the decisions I made. But I I felt like it was like none of Derek's actions would have made any sense if he had been a mustache twirling alpha going around biting people without their consent. Because, okay, so he like drove Allison home, but like actually drove her home safely (laughs) from a party and like... It's not even like he stole her jacket because it's not like she's like, yeah, some some weirdo drove me home and took my jacket. Like, I feel like the most logical explanation for that sequence of events is he gave her a ride home safely. She left her jacket in his car. And then he was like, I know I'll use this to get Scott to come have this conversation with me. And I can give him kind of the werewolf 101 and be like, you're going to pop a lot of awkward werewolf boners. You got to be careful that you don't go around just like murdering people, including your girlfriend. Derek tried to arrange it. He like threw it in the back. So she just like forget about it. I think yeah. it was totally planned. Like, like I think the moment yeah. he saw Scott run off, he was like jackpot. I but know my point, my here. point is though, that he, he didn't just run up and steal it. <laughs> right. He didn't, right. he wasn't just like, I need your jacket. You know, like, so oh my then, God, where did you get that jacket? I need it. <laughs> I love it. Um, but then Scott shows up. The conversation does not go as planned. He helps, you know, save Scott from, the hunters, he he's kind of watching from the sidelines. He's watching as Scott basically broadcasts to the whole town that he's a werewolf. <laughs> like he's making it just as easy as possible for anyone. And so he keeps trying to, he tries various ways. There's the bite is a gift. We're brothers. That didn't work. There's final kill you if you don't stop doing this stuff that somehow doesn't work either uh and then finally you know scott comes to him for help and is like how do i retrieve these memories he provides scott with succinct but actually very helpful advice and then scott concludes like that Derek must have been the one to bite him and the one who killed the bus driver and he told scott how to figure that out because question mark question mark question mark i just I feel like when I got that information, not the alpha part, because that that's more the mythology. Yeah. Um, but just the fact that it was not him, I was like, well, yeah. Yeah. Because if it had been, there would have been a pretty labyrinthine explanation for how Derek's actions supported that sequence of events. Yeah. He's as bad at planning a villainous acts as he is at communicating. So. Uh-huh. Well, that actually would have been a... Uh, fairly decent explanation, I suppose. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So it, I, I wasn't surprised by that, but I was really interested in this idea of like 
different types of werewolves and pack structure. And then I wanted some of that cutting room floor stuff about like, (laughs) about like, could both of your parents be alphas or could there only be one? And if so, what is the, what is the dating process like for werewolves? You know, like, would you have to put, would there be like a werewolf dating app where you have to put your status there? Like, yeah, yeah, put like alpha, beta, omega, and then whether you're bitten or born, because some people might have preferences or there might be there might be cultural differences based on whether you were raised by humans or raised by other wolves. All that boring stuff Alpha. that no one wants to hear about. That's absolutely what I want is what I'm saying. Alpha seeking, beta, no bites, only borns. Yeah. Because <laughs> exactly. there's where prejudice. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But also there's probably there probably is some cultural stuff. Like you like Derek would probably have a really hard time. Well, no, Derek definitely has a really hard time talking to humans and or bitten wolves because clearly his style of communication is more in line with like Malia's, which is yeah. ask me a question. I'll answer it. Honestly. Yeah. Uh, I'm don't ask me a question and I'll just say whatever I'm thinking without <laughs> sugarcoating it whatsoever. Yeah. That's their style of communication. Periodic eye rolls are another uh, important element. So yeah, I, I, I wasn't surprised, but I was really interested in this idea of like pack dynamics and how werewolves can differ from one another. Right. And just, you know, excited to find out who the alpha is. It's going to be fun. I'm guessing... I'm guessing maybe it's a character we already know. I mean, we've already introduced a lot of characters on the show so far. So I guess we're just going to have to see what happens. Wait and see. Yeah, we'll just have to wait and see. Who is the alpha? Only time will tell. So this is a good episode. We've now, I feel like we've left act one of the story and we're moving into act two. And uh, that's a lot of fun. So I'm very excited to see what's coming next for Scott and everyone else in Beacon Hills. Yeah. I'm very excited to continue this journey with y'all, but right now we are going to jump over to our talk with Dino Minigan, the composer of Teen Wolf. Let's have a listen. Hey. Hey, Dino. Hey. hey. Yes, I can. How are you? Hey. Excellent. And you? Oh, man. Your studio looks so amazing. I just have some trash on <laughs> thing right there. I wish I had taken down now. Uh, hi, Kate. Hi, Calissa. Hey. Yeah. Hey. It's nice how to you meet you. Do? Nice to meet you as well. Well, Dino's our incredible composer who just brought so much more vibrancy and and life to the show with the fantastic score that I got right when uh, I left. I I asked Post, I was like, can I have the score? And they were like, you mean for this season? I was like, like all of it. For the whole show? The entire show. Would be great. And I was like... And they're like, yeah, I was like, I've got a hard drive right here. And, uh, so yeah, no, it's, it's part it's, of my... What's this in my pocket? It's a hard drive. It's like, Put oh, I've already got this hard drive it. with my name on it. Oh, how did that get there? But, I remember um, you no. told me that at the time. Yeah, and I, I listen to it all the time when I'm writing. It's just, it's so much fun and so good. And it really adds just another another layer of awesome to all of the awesome that comes with Teen Wolf already. And that's totally on you. So there we oh, go. Thanks, man. That's, that's, that's always to me high praise when somebody listens to to my music when they're writing. That's always my... Well, it's it's it's, it's great because, I mean, I mean, much like the show, I mean, obviously much like the show because the music is from the show, but it's just, it has, it has great action, has great intensity. So it's like, it's like, oh, okay. I, there's some stuff from season three that I love the most when I'm writing something that's that's kind of fast paced or something like that. Mm-hmm. But then it's like, I, I love this the I love the slower tracks as well, you know, because because Team Wolf has great 
quiet moments as well. Like we were, we were just talking with Russell Mulcahy yesterday and we were talking about like how the show can get very bombastic, but it can also be quiet. Like it knows when it knows when to pull back and all Mm. that, which is great. And it knows when to just have quiet music. I'm using awful, I think terminology here. It's It's intimate. It's intimate. It feels. Yeah. Yes. The the show, I, I feel like, is is you know kind of like our bread and butter was the big scope and all that but then we can really hit you with the intimacy too you know and it comes out of nowhere sometimes and, it, and it's fantastic because you've had these amazing knockout scenes with great action and acting and all that but then it's like we really just kind of bring it in and get real quiet with just two actors and and it just it's fantastic and then there's always this the, the score in the background just giving us that, that little extra something you know that's just bringing something to the scene and uh it's fantastic it's just fantastic this is definitely one of my favorite scores it's one of my favorite oh, scores hi. like i said i listen to it all the time when i'm writing because it's it's just so good and there's so much of it that it's like because normally i have to make a giant playlist of stuff that's like i need like five hours of music and it's like no no i've got so many gigabytes of teen wolf footage of teen wolf music here and i just turned it on it's like oh just pick a season let it go and it's just <laughs> it's it's like the life cycle of creativity right so you the the show is written and then it's scored so the music complements the writing and then it cu- comes back and inspires more writing yeah pretty I cool that. yeah i think so actually awesome all right well let's let's dive in here dino how did you get into composing was this always a dream or had had you been a musician and and discovered composing I had, I actually, I actually very specifically for a long time didn't want to be a composer because I, I, I knew a few people who did it and it seemed like a really tedious and nerve wracking job. Uh, and I was right. Uh, it can be a tedious and nerve wracking job. Uh, but the, I had been at, at the time that I started working on Team Wolf, I had been writing music for, um, for advertisements and at the time that was what i wanted to do because you know because the jobs were short and it was it seemed like a a less stressful environment um and uh and i i knew some friends who were who were doing well financially doing it so it seemed like a good thing to sort of put my time into and um when the team wolf thing came up uh it, i hadn't really considered actually you know writing for scripted television or film but i you know when the opportunity made itself available, I, I, you know, I tried for the job and I ended up getting the job. And uh, it was just kind of one of those, uh, one of those weird things in life where you, you know, sort of when you say yes to everything, eventually you sort of, uh, sometimes you end up in, in situations that you just wouldn't have, have predicted. And it just ended up that I, I really enjoyed it. And the more I did it, the more I actually uh, enjoyed this kind of work. You know, you said the the opportunity presented itself. How do you how do you go out for a job like that? Do you record like a a sample for an episode? Well, what it, what the the way it happened actually was that I this is sort of one of those this is kind of a great example of one of those things where they always tell you to sort of you know be open to a lot of different kinds of jobs because you don't know how things will lead to each other. I had been doing music for MTV. Uh, I'd been doing a lot of what are called song replacements where somebody says, you know, like, hey, you know, we want it to sound like, you know, Sia, but, you know, don't get us sued, you know, that kind of thing, (laughs) you know, and like, and 
Um, I had been doing a lot of that at the time. And um, I had been working on, through doing that, I ended up working on a show called Taking the Stage, which was an MTV show that was a, um, it was a reality show. And they, and they followed uh, these, these kids at, a, at, a, at a, an arts high school in Cincinnati, Ohio. And the music supervisor on that show and I uh, got to be good friends. And, and uh, when she was approached by doing Teen Wolf, she called me and said, hey, you know, there's this thing, you know, do you want to do this? And do you want to do you want to put out a reel for this? So that was how I got the opportunity. Now, the, what I ended up giving them was actually um, one of the things that I had that I gave them was a reel of uh, I had been it was a demo for um it was a Samsung commercial and it was like a minute and a half long. It was like this big cinematic action sequence. And it just, it just so happened that I had this sort of some, some very, um, some sort of action, actiony sort of cinematic stuff available at the time. Now, I mean, if I'm being a hundred percent honest, I have a feeling that probably, you know, MTV at the time was, you know, they hadn't done any scripted stuff and uh this was their first scripted show and i'm sure that had they had a proper budget they probably would not have called me (laughs) they probably would have called somebody with a lot more experience uh but uh i happened to be in the right place at the right time and uh and that ended up just sort of starting my my career as a composer so at the time i was at the time when i actually ended up getting um the job i was on tour with michael buble i was a guitar player um wow. and so That's i was awesome. actually I, I talked to i forget where we were exactly but i remember talking to jeff davis in the parking lot of some stadium somewhere and uh, we i ended my tenure with michael on uh in december of 2010 and then i started in january of 2011 uh, on on team wolf so just like the timing ended up being really perfect for me. And I, you know, I've been trying for about, you know, five or six years to find a way to get off the road and do something else. And that, and that sort of just, that, that was not what I imagined I was going to be doing, but that was how that, anyway, that's a very long winded way to answer that question. So I apologize. No, it's great. It's really yeah. interesting. I have, I, we have a newborn right now, so I don't really sleep. So I, I really apologize for if anything, if it sounds like I'm I'm answering, um, you know, if the person answering sounds like they basically are existing on, you know, caffeine, two hours of sleep and a little bit of hope. That's because that's <laughs> what's happening. So. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, congratulations. Yeah. Yes. Newborn. That's 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 wonderful. Um, Thank you. The, the music supervisor you mentioned, was that Laura Webb? Mm-hmm. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. She's yeah. fantastic. <clears throat> yeah, she's great. And we we met on that show taking the stage. Uh she had um she did the second she came on for the second season of that show and we just and we've done a bunch of stuff together since then. Um yeah, she's been a, a great colleague and just a really good friend too. So What kind of influences did you have um when finding the sound of Teen Wolf? You know, a lot of it was talking with Jeff Davis cuz Jeff is Jeff is somebody who has a very clear idea of what he wants musically. Jeff has a very strong idea of he's a, he's a big fan of, of 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 music and films from like the late 80s early 90s a lot of it was like James Horner and John Williams and um, 
um, some of the other ones that he would, there was a lot of those, those was like, he loves the close encounters was a big reference a lot. Superman two. I remember was one of those films that like he, that he loved and he referenced a lot, not always like, not always stylistically specifically, but a lot of the way that the, the music functioned in the, in the show. So, but yeah, so a lot of that was, was working with Jeff and trying out different things. When we started the show, I think by the time, you know, we ended the show, the show kind of had its own identity a little more. I think in the first season, you know, obviously we were still, you know, kind of trying to find that. And so you can kind of hear in the first season, you know, maybe it kind of varies a little more you know, stylistically, you know, things that we were kind of, you know, trying out while we were sort of trying to find the, the music varies about as much as, as, you know, um, Scott's hairpiece makeup. So like you can see like the different seasons, how, you know, the first season, like it came to about here and then the second season, they backed it up and like take them about to the, like the fourth season to really like really nail it. Um, well, and, yeah. Well, that's interesting. Cause I mean, like, you know, as, a story progresses and as a show progresses, you know, you're really finding, you're just kind of honing in on what the story needs to be, what it wants to be and like all the elements that need to go into it. And, you know, and obviously the score is going to be that way too, where, you know, when you're a fresh show and you're the pilot and you've got your first season where you're just trying to maybe experiment a little bit more and just kind of really hone in on like the themes or the, or the, the ideas that you want the the score to get across. And, and then of course, by the end, you know, it's like, you've, you know exactly who you are and, and it's wonderful. And I'm glad you mentioned uh, James Horner, just cause I, I, one of the questions, it wasn't even a question that I wrote. I just wanted to comment that uh, the yeah, Scott right. falls down the hill and gets attacked by the world. It sounds like James Horner's alien score and, and, and in the best possible way, like it, it just fee, it just has that wonderful energy that he brought to that score and then just feeling it in this scene. And it, it's just wonderful. Like it, it, it sounds so good. And I mean, all of the score sounds good. It's just that scene just really kind of caught me when I was like, oh, this feels like, you know, like this was influenced by other people. And then saying, cause I know, you know, having worked with Jeff and being in the writer's room, we were always talking about other movies and stories, you know, the mm-hmm. stuff that we just loved and really gravitated to. And it's how can we, how can we bring the emotions we get from those mm-hmm. stories uh, and bring that to Teen Wolf? How can we get our, audience to feel what we feel when we watch aliens or superman 2 or close encounters like how how do we bring that to the story so um, it's great you mentioned that just because i i love that scene it's a fantastic scene to begin with but the score really just elevates it and and makes it he he had that written in his in his notes for for this call that's why when you said james horner i made that face because i was like (laughs) will spot on Yeah. yeah i mean the thing you have to remember when you listen to the score especially in the first season is i had no idea what the f- i was doing you know <laughs> I, you're, you're really like listening to somebody like figuring out sort of the language of film music sort of in real time as you know it was very much like it was it was kind of funny because it was very much like one of those you know it's like those you know those, those old hollywood stories that you would hear that like never happen anymore you know be like and i was walking by the warner lot you know and they pulled me in and said you know can you operate a crane you know what i mean and like <laughs> that, that kind of stuff you know and it was like and it was it was literally it was sort of like they were like you know do you know how to be a composer and i was like yeah and uh and I, I, you know, I think to a certain extent, you know, it was, I knew the fundamentals of it, but I had no, 
you know, I, I was really trying to figure this out, you know, as I was doing it. So I, I had come from a background of, you know, the longest thing I had written was like, you know, a minute long, you know, piece of music for a commercial, you know, so I didn't know how to write like a, you know, eight, nine minute, you know, action sequence. So a lot of it was just me, you know, you're hearing somebody just sort of try to figure this stuff out. And uh, it's, I'm, I'm, I've, I'm lucky that it sort of, it ended up working out because it sort of could have been a disaster. <laughs> so, I never would have like thought that you had to have ex- like a lot of experience beforehand. I mean, it just, the sounds are just so incredible and cinematic that, yeah, it just seems like you or someone who came from like years of working on major TV shows, like HBO stuff and everything. It's just, you know, it's really incredible, like what you're able to do. So yeah. Well, I, I, I appreciate that. I mean, the, you know, the, the, what I think the biggest difference is, is that when you're, you know, when I was, when you're kind of starting out with something like that, you know, what ends up happening is you're sort of always sort of returning serve, you know, you always, you don't have enough, you don't have quite enough command of all of the, 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 the language and the technique to really sort of bring a lot to it. So it was really more like I was just trying not to screw up and it, it took me until, you know, I don't think you hear until like maybe the fourth season where I started to get a lot more confident and sort of have ideas like, okay, well, well, what if we do it this way now? Like the show that I'm working on now, it, you know, we, we don't, we don't even use temp score because, and we have, it's an animated show and we have longer turnaround time. So we don't, we're not turning out like an episode a week. So like, it's completely based on, you know, converse, the score is completely based on conversations that I have with the showrunner. And so, but I couldn't, I couldn't have done that back then. It took, for me, like Teen Wolf was, it was like sort of a, it was like going to film school. You know, I think in a, in a way I couldn't have done that with anybody else because Jeff knows exactly what he wants the music to do and learning how to write in a way that made Jeff happy what really just taught me a lot about it was like finishing school you know it really taught me how to write music in in a way that like sometimes when I have other people on my team I'll end up teaching them things that you know that Jeff taught me uh you know because he had, had a very specific way of of really uh, you know tracking a scene and tracking dialogue with the music that not everybody not everybody does so yeah so it's i mean jeff jeff is very responsible for a lot of the way i write you know to this day i feel the the same way in, in many respects where having been a writer for jeff that he knows exactly what he wants he doesn't waffle he doesn't uh he's not like well let's try this let's see what's this and he's right. like i know exactly what i want here's how we're going to accomplish this, you know? And, and like you said, like working on Teen Wolf for me as a writer, like I thought I was okay when I started on Teen Wolf. And then when I started, once I got into the writer's room and and was working, I was like, I have so much to learn. I, I don't know anything like I thought I did, you know, and I still break story the way we did it on Teen Wolf. Like I still, you know, I use like the same questions and, and, and stuff like that, that we'd use to break every single episode. That's how I break all the stories that I work on just because it was great. It was a great, like you said, it was, it was like school. It was like going to school and, and learning everything and learning everything that you thought you kind of knew already, but then kind of being like, it's finishing school. And now you're it's like, when you leave the project, you're like, now you can do this. You know, um, you mentioned uh, not using uh, temp music. I know we did use temp music on Teen Wolf sometimes. Do you have a preference? Do you like seeing a scene with, um, with, with some, some music ideas in there? Or do you like just seeing, kind of an, an empty scene and just letting letting it all come to you that way. 
I think most composers would prefer not to have temp music. I think, you know, like the way that we're working on the show um, that I'm working on now is, you know, basically we we literally just watch, you know, we watch a whole episode dry and we sort of spot it and just talk about a lot of the conversations that I have with the showrunner. In fact, all of them, they're almost never specifically about music. They're more about how he wants the music to function and sort of who, what character's point of view we're going to be in right here. And, you know, character motivations and things. And, you know, that that for me is a lot of is is really rewarding because then, you know, I'm not I, I can sit there and and say, OK, what's the best way to accomplish this? Now, the thing is, you know, this show is animated and we have much longer lead times than we do. on, And, and it's and it's on it's online. Like Teen Wolf, we were doing, you know, like an hour, uh, you know, a 42 minute show every you know week and a half. And there, there's just no. There's absolutely no way you could do that. You couldn't do this process there because like, you know, you when you're turning around something that fast in a week or less, you have to basically have an idea of there, there isn't a lot of time to go. You know what? Mm, that doesn't work. Let's try it a different way. Yeah, You have to basically say, OK, this is what works. You, know, you do get rewrites and things, but it's like you basically have to have an idea of what works. It's not as much. Uh, fun in a certain way but it's like that that's just the reality of of when you have a schedule like that you just can't you know do it so i mean in 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 those situations where you have to have temp music sort of the next best thing is if you if you can use music that's that you've already written from the show or from other projects at least that you're not chasing somebody else's temp it's it's always that's always just it's it's i I, you know i think everybody understands why it happens but it is frustrating to have a you know a temp that that you know that somebody has sort of fallen in love with and then you know they end up wanting you to do you know to to recreate what's on the temp track and and i think that you know it's just it's frustrating because obviously you you don't you know you're kind of like well you know if you want that composer call that guy you know i don't you know what i mean it's like that's and and that's obviously you know for a lot of reasons sometimes it's budgetary sometimes it's schedule wise sometimes they can't call that person but i mean there's i always in those cases i always kind of say hey you know what let's you know let what if we try it like this and try to i try to kind of encourage people that like look like you know the this show or this film really needs to have its own identity musically like we don't you know, not just for me, but for the, the, the showrunner or the, you know, director as well. Like, you don't, you should be a part of this process as well. You should be, um, we should be creating this together. And, you know, you don't necessarily, you know, sort of like, don't, don't sell it short and just try to chase whatever the last film you saw was, you know, yeah, and that, that you liked. So, right. and, you know, sometimes you win that conversation, sometimes you don't. But I've, I've been, lu- I've been lucky that, um, you know, the last uh, couple of things I've, I've gotten to do, you know, haven't been, I've gotten a lot of freedom to, you know, not have to really deal with that too much. So that's fantastic. You mentioned um, that, you know, that you would talk about sort of which character's perspective mm-hmm. we, the audience is going to be experiencing the scene mm-hmm. from. So did you sort of develop a different type of sound for different Teen Wolf characters? Well, in, you know, my, yes. I mean, we had a lot of different character themes that, that when I was talking about those conversations about character point of view, I was, I was referencing a, uh, a show that I'm, I'm, I'm working on currently the way that Jeff and I would talk about the show was similar, but in a little different way, we would talk about, we would talk very specifically about music. And also when you have a show, you know, when you've been doing something for three or four seasons, 
you know, a lot of times you end up referencing other things that you've done in the past. Yeah, we had a lot of, we had a lot of character themes because we had a lot of characters. And um, we also had a thing where, you know, because you know, the show had in, in a certain way, it was kind of like a monster of the week where every season, uh, sort of monster of the season, where it's like every season we would be in a, take mythology from like a different part of the world. I would always try to adapt the music to, we would always try to include some things. So like, I think it was in season three, three when we were in mexico um i four, i used I was it four i think it's four um, yeah it's it's all a blur of red bull and pretzels today at this point <laughs> uh like we would i remember like we used some it, like some uh folk songs uh some and san Jiroko. i got into san Jiroko music um which is a, a style from a style that's actually pretty popular in la but all you know that comes from mexico and you know, when we did the, 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 uh, all the Japanese stuff, we, you know, brought in some, um, some Japanese themes and, you know, I tried to the best of my ability to do, uh, and when we actually did the, actually what was interesting is when we did the, um, all the stuff with the, um, the Druid stuff, when we did like the chant and the whole, um, you know, the, the choir of the undead that we had, um, uh, when we had, uh, on the show, you know, I had, to, I was doing like, I was going into like musicology departments and stuff and, you know, emailing people and being like, Hey, you know, was there Druid music? And, you know, they didn't write anything down. So, you know, like that was like one of those things where it's like, we found out there really wasn't like Druid music. So Druid music was kind of like whatever you guessed it was, you know? So we had so, but anyway, we tried our, our best, uh, to, to incorporate, um, you know, into the music, whatever, whatever part of the world we were referencing. And, and sorry, to get back to your question about uh, character point of view, it wasn't as much about, we didn't talk about point of view as much as really sort of, sort of character themes and developing those character themes. And that was something that Jeff like really hammered home to like, to the point where like, that was probably the, one of the biggest influences Jeff had on me was just the idea to like really write memorable themes and I'm not saying that I always write memorable themes, but I always try to. And, uh, and, and so I tend to, so I almost, you know, I keep kind of lists when I'm writing of all the character themes I have and, you know, and, and um, the ways that I write them and, and the way that I've, um, I, I've gotten much more comfortable doing it. At that time, I, I was a lot less comfortable doing it, but, you know, that was, that was kind of one of the, um, one of the things that Jeff really hammered home in me that now I just can't get away from. So it's, it's just so interesting, like how, you know, like the, the process of, of finding like the sound, you know, cause you're, you know, like every season we did have like a different mythology to pull from, you know, it's like Jeff was always like, we need to find different places in the world where we can pull mythology from and not just do the same old thing over and over again. But then it's like, every time you do that, it just opens a door to new sound you know, that you don't really think about maybe initially, but it's like, oh, hey, you know, we're going to do, you know, Japanese mythology. So it's like, well, let's, let's bring that sound into the show. Let's not just keep doing the same thing. And uh, I always liked how each season had like a, a new sound in a sense, whereas the same, it's, you know, you're building off what came before, but it's like, you, I feel like you can almost just play tracks from a certain season and be like, oh, well, that's five, you know, or that's four, or that's the original, or the first season. And uh, I think it's fantastic. It's, just awesome. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> it's so cool. So season two gets an opening title sequence mm, and yeah. the music is fantastic. It's, 
I thought it was instantly iconic. Absolutely. How did you go about finding the main title theme for Teen Wolf? So um, that was that was a process just like anything else. We did, you know, there's, I mean, I've got, I still have on a hard drive somewhere, like all the rejected versions of the, of the main title. And, you know, like I remember that would have been in like 2012 or 2013, I think. Um, so like at that time, you know, like dubstep was really hot, you know what I mean? So like, God, it feels like forever ago. <laughs> so I remember like I did, you know, I had some like very dubstep, it sounded like, you know, Voltron dry humping a dumpster, you know, <laughs> um, and, uh, you can cut that out if you want. <laughs> no, no, that's sorry. No, no, no we won't do that. I, no, I, I, me- I mentioned I don't sleep a lot. So the, <laughs> um, I'm going to be a great dad. The, um, so yeah, we had a lot of you know rejected versions, and uh, actually one of the versions, one of the things, that, and I still have it. Um, one of the versions we actually did was we actually I did a remix of "Hungry Like the Wolf," uh, the Duran Duran, um, and I, and there was some issue with the rights or whatever um, that. But I have a I have a. I, I have it. It wasn't bad, actually. That was. Uh, I would love to hear. That's amazing. right. I I was actually just trying to figure out if it would be polite to ask, like, if we could hear one of the versions that they didn't end up going with. That just sounds fascinating. I don't know to if me. I still have it. I I gotta find it. It's it's buried on a heart. I ha- I know I have it somewhere. I have to find it, but um, the um, and I don't even think. Like, I'm trying to think how I did. I think I might have, I don't remember if I even like legit got the stem because Russell Mulcahy, because he, he did all the Duran Duran videos and he knew all those guys. And so like, he was like, oh no, we'll, we'll do this. And I don't remember what the, I don't, it was some rights issue. Like they didn't want to do it. I don't remember exactly what the reason was. I remember, I don't want to tell tales out of school here. I remember there was, there was like a, a friend of the bands that did a version of it and um, did a version of the remix. And then I was like, well, I'm going to do my own version. And then like, so I got real competitive, you know, and then, and I, and I, I, I remember Jeff and Russell dug the version that I did. And then for, for whatever reason, we ended up not, not going that way. Yeah. I'm, it's much better than we did. Um, I remember I heard it because I remember being you, at oh, okay. the um, I remember being at the at the post facility that was right across the street from uh, MTV for season one where all the editors were and I think it might have been even in Alyssa Clark's Bay where she showed like it was like a mock up of what the title sequence could be it was like I think they just threw together like stuff they found on the internet and just turned it into something but it had the song mm-hmm. and I thought it sounded fantastic. And but then what, where where was that on Colorado or was that yeah on mm-hmm. yeah okay yeah yeah it was right across yeah because you just walked across the street from the yeah. MTV building and there was that just that little that little building that you wouldn't realize was a post facility and there's mm-hmm. all the editors were upstairs and, and it was all right that, yeah. right next to Yahoo right mm-hmm. yep yeah yeah okay yeah yeah that's where I met uh, that's where I met all the post people and I actually this has nothing to do with the score but I borrowed Blaine's uh, mouse pad and I never gave it back and I actually still have that mouse pad it was just a wonderful little like prayer let's rug call mouse him pad. Wow. <laughs> let's call Blaine let's call him <laughs> and tell him that this happened and we're gonna narc we're gonna narc <laughs> 
deserved well. Good, good news, buddy. I know 2021 hasn't been great so far, but we got your mouse pad. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Bringing it back. So, yeah. We all live in a dystopian hellscape, but we do have your mouse pad. So. We do have the mouse pad. So I'll see if I can Things get Things looking up. Things yeah. are looking up. Yeah, That's we're good. looking good. We can't, you know, we can't, you can't get a shot in LA if you're under 65, but, you know, we got a mouse pad for you. There you go. So there at least you, you won't be scratching your computer table. That's what matters. Yeah, exactly. I noticed as, as we've been doing our, our rewatch and, and just going through everything that the uh, in the first season, there was kind of the outro music. Uh, they kind of just played over the credits and then it changed uh, later on, I believe for season two. And do you, was there maybe a, a reason for that? Or was it just through the evolution of finding the sound of the show? Um, I don't, you know what? I don't remember. I honestly don't remember. You know, it's like when, when Kate or Clissa or someone asked me, it's like, oh, well, how'd you do this thing? And the writer was like, it's all a blur. I don't know. It's yeah. all one giant writer's room. Where it's there like, were post-its, I think, but I don't. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I don't know. We had a whiteboard <laughs> and we wrote some stuff down and then it was in the episode. That's just kind of how. It yeah, happened. I don't. I, I I mean, so much is a blur. Like, I remember one time we stayed up for, it was me and two other guys who were working at studio. We were up for like 30 hours or 33 hours and like we were at we had been at this I had had this studio in Burbank behind the Burbank airport and um this was season four and we were working on the finale and I remember that the the power kept going out in in the studio and I ended up bringing an electrician out because the guy who owned the studio was out of town and and he was like look I don't know what's happening in the studio, but he's like, somebody is drawing a shit ton of current in this building. And because I was looking at the, at the, um, at the current meter and it was like, there was way too much current being drawn for like, you know, like a, another composer, like with a computer and ended up hap- what ended up happening was um, that we had in the back of the building, there was like a marijuana grow operation that they hadn't told any of us about. So like I like the whole time we had been at the studio, like the, when the air conditioning would come on, like we would get headaches and it would, you know, would kind of kind of <laughs> oh, smell God. like weed. And I and I always thought like, man, like who's smoking weed in here? And I, I remember I would talk to the guys and be like, man, look, can you just smoke outside because it's coming into my room? And and I remember calling one of the guys, and be like, hey man, can you not smoke in the anyway? And so he's like, I, I don't smoke in the building and blah. blah. And it turned out that there was like these guys running a grow operation that they, nobody told us about. And, uh, and it got into this weird thing where like, like, I remember like screaming at the guy who owned the studio. I was like, I was like, I don't give a shit who's back there. I said, if I've got like, I've still got 20 minutes of music to finish, you know, for a very homoerotic scene. And like, if you don't get that somebody out here to fix this right now, I'm going to have a canine team down here in the morning. I don't <laughs> give a shit if Pablo Escobar is in the back of that thing. And, oh, no. and it was so, and it was just like, that was very par for the course. Like it, I, I, that just like, like I didn't, like none of us gave a shit. All we were doing was just working and, and, and getting this stuff done. So I don't remember a lot. <laughs> so some of the season four seven. scores might have been written in a little bit of an accidental like weed haze absolutely. is what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. Cut print. That's it. 
That's yeah. it. That's all you need. <laughs> well, what I'm trying to say is we, we were high as <laughs> whatever it takes because you're talking about like 30 hour days and all that i mean tv production is crushing like the schedule is crushing and it's just once that someone presses the start button there's no stopping like it's it's you don't stop for anything and it's just well you've got minutes of music to write we've got pages to write you know it's like well you either do it or you know, we have nothing. And then you're still spending thousands upon thousands of dollars a day for people to wait around. And it's like, well, you can't do that. And yeah, um, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a crushing schedule, but I, I, for me, at least it's ultimately worth, it was worthwhile just because it was so much fun at the end of the day, you know, it, I, mean, it yeah, it sucked a lot I think it was sometimes. a show that was, I, I forgot who said it. I think one of, one of our editors said it to me and I don't remember which one, but um, that it, it's really a show that is it was that was so much better than it ever deserved to be. Like you know, it was this show that was on MTV that was not a network that was known for scripted television, and you know, a lot of times we had a very limited budget, not enough time and resource. I mean, you can see like you know some of the some of the CG in the first season, you know, that that monster that comes out at the end of the you know the first season, you know, it was but it's like it didn't like it was. It was a show where everybody wanted it to be really good and everybody we like we would kill ourselves like trying to make this thing like it was like we were making Lawrence of Arabia every week. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like this, you know, silly show about werewolves. I mean, it wasn't a show about werewolves, but it was, you know, this show like we all cared and I still care about it. Like I still feel like very strongly about the show and we were all really we would like gripe and like oh the schedule and blah, blah, like but like we would all just just do it and part of it was because like it came from the top like jeff never took a, a break ever like and i knew that if i was working hard jeff was working five times as hard as me and i'd always just kind of suck it up and be like oh, all right well yeah jeff you know, is definitely just, a, just do it yeah he's a lead from the front type of boss where it's not the type of thing where it's like, you know, it's like, Oh, go shoot the scene or this. I'm going to be in my office doing whatever. He's like, no, no, he's on set right next to you making it happen. Or he's in the spotting sessions or he's, he's in the editor's bay. Cause I remember like so many days where it's like the writers were at the table and we're breaking story. And it's just, it got to certain points where it's like, we get Jeff three times today. He'll come once in the morning, once at noon and once in the evening. And it's just because he's being pulled in so many different directions mm -hmm. and all that. And it was definitely, I mean, if you feel like, you know, it's like, God, I worked so hard today. I don't know how I did it. It's like, well, Jeff probably worked about four times harder than you today mm -hmm. doing it. So it's it was never a, like, it never felt like we were the ones working hard. It's like, he's working so hard and that makes you work even harder because, you know, he's so committed to it. And it's like, we all wanted the show to be so good and you're right i mean i've told the story before but it's like i remember seeing the first commercial for teen wolf and i was like this looks pretty stupid you know it's just a twilight ripoff it can't possibly be good and then i got hired on the show and i read all the scripts for the first season and i was like this makes no sense that it's good like it has no right to be as good as it is on mtv and and I feel like that was a, a lot of people's experience with it, where they're just like, oh, Dean Wolf, oh, I know exactly what I'm getting. And then you work on it or you watch it or you read it. And you're like, I had no clue what I was getting. And 
Yeah. I was just going to say, like, I feel like the passion of the uh, cast and crew really came through when watching it. Like, you know, that everyone was very dedicated to making it the best show that it could be. Everybody was really trying hard to make the show, you know, as good as it could be. And it's, you know, and it, it has, I think the fact that it's, it's, it really found an audience that was like well beyond its target demographic. Like I have a friend who's my age who told me that it was, it was easier for him to come out as, as a gay man than it was for him to come out as a Teen Wolf fan. Cause he was just, he was, <laughs> you know, he, um, I remember he was, he was working at Fox at the time and, you know, he, it was just, but like, he loved the show like genuinely loved it. And it was just, I think for people, a lot of people, it sort of started out as a, maybe a guilty pleasure that then they, they really kind of got involved in it. And uh, it was, it was cool to see it, And it's cool to see for me to see that, you know, for, for a lot of people, um, it, it had a really positive impact on their life. And a lot of kids who were, you know, I know that there was, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, the kids in the LGBTQ community who, you know, who, who kind of latched onto it and felt like they saw some representation. And it's like, you know, those things were like, that stuff is never perfect. They were like that, like I am fully aware of, of, you know, places in the show where there could have been more representation. Uh, uh, and it's like, it's, but like the, the things that the positive things that the show was able to connect with people on, um, I'm still really proud of that. You know, that, that kids who didn't have, cause I don't remember what it was like to be like a kid and not like, I mean, I was like, like I'm the most represented per, I'm a straight white dude. Like there's nobody who's more <laughs> represented than me, you know, but like, it's not that hard to be a straight white dude, you know, but like, it's, but just to be, even being a kid, I remember being a kid and it's just, everything is like to see yourself reflected, you know, that's a big deal. And for kids, for a lot of kids, I think even at the time when Teen Wolf came out, like that was actually a lot more representation I think that like, it's easy to forget that was only 10 years ago, but like that, you know, that at that time, that was a lot more representation. That was a bigger deal than it is now. So, you know, it's still, I think that that's, you know, anyway, I don't, I'm, I'm talking about shit. I don't know about, I'm just saying it was, it was nice when you would see those things and like, especially kids who kind of latched onto it and felt like they had something there to grab onto. That was, that was always a cool thing. So. Sorry, I don't sleep a lot. Definitely, Jeff fought for a lot of that stuff too because we we talked to him for this podcast and he he talked about a few scenes that MTV was like like trying to find a say to him this scene is too gay without saying this scene is too gay, mm-hmm. you know, and and him basically being like, mm, well, I'm gonna do it though, so you know, <laughs> get used to it, and it 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 shows. I mean, perfect or not, it it is doing something very special. Yeah, and and I think that, and it's and when I say it's not perfect, that's not in any way to take away from what Jeff accomplished. I'm just saying it's like whenever we look back, you know, whenever you look back, like you can always see, like, well, you know, there's other things that you know, like, and there's and when I and I, it's like, you know, there there was, you know, crit, people had you know critiques of you know, uh, you know, of things you know representationally that 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 they felt you know could have been different on the show and. Um, and I'm not, I'm not ignoring that when I say, I'm just saying it's like the things that the show did well. Um, I think, you know, I remember Jeff saying that like one of the things that he wanted was to have a show where, you know, um, 
there were gay characters that were just gay characters. It wasn't like, you know, the gay kid. And they were, you know, and it, and it, and and he did that really well. And it's again, like it's it doesn't seem like as much of a big deal now, but at the time it, it was a big deal, you know, and I, it was a big deal that it wasn't a big deal on the show. So I, I thought that was always I, I thought that was always uh you know cool how they how that was handled on the show. Well, we did want to ask if uh if you had any new projects that you wanted to talk a little bit about. Um, Why talk sure. a lot about Teen Wolf, but if you know if you yeah, wanted to talk about some other stuff you're working on, we'd be really interested in that too. Um, I'm working on a on a show uh, on Netflix. It's called Dota Dragon's Blood, and I'm very excited about uh, about that show. Uh, we've been having a lot of fun doing it. Uh, it's with um, uh, Ashley Edward Miller, uh, who was one of the writers on Thor Ragnarok, and uh, and uh, uh, I worked with him on a show called Lore um on yeah. on that was on amazon yeah. yeah yeah and uh we actually didn't meet until after the show was done um but i i i, I met him uh and, and we ended up and he said hey i'm doing this show on netflix i think that you know you might be good for and so it was it was a period of like a year that we kind of went back and forth and talked about it and uh, but when it finally came together you know we were able to do it and uh it's it's been a blast it's been a lot of fun so the way i describe the show is um if you uh took ayahuasca and then binge watched game of thrones and old episodes of heavy metal back to back uh so if you like uh yeah that's a wild like, like, combination that's, that's yeah, incredible yeah. like high high magic uh graphic violence and elf sex uh then it's uh yeah i, I know say no more say no more so and I think it's at least worth a curse review. Um, Absolutely. So it's it's cool. It's it's another show with like a very dedicated fandom because it's, it comes from a a video game title uh, that has a, a huge uh, you know user base all over the world. So I'm interested to see how they how they react to the show. So sure but yeah, that's that's been a lot of fun. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, that sounds great. I'm really underslept, so please, when you're editing this, can you not make me look stupid or like? Oh, oh. yeah, this is fantastic. A really fun interview. This has been so good. Don't let me just don't let me say anything that's gonna get me in trouble. Was I hope I didn't say anything stupid that'll get me in trouble. I don't want to get. I I don't want to get. I don't want to have to buy an apartment in Cansylvania. I don't want (laughs) to. It's like I'm so happy that we were able to sit down and talk about a show that we all love and that so many people still love, you know, as we've been pulling the podcast together and talking to people and, and, and figuring out who we can talk to about the show and all that. It's just that everyone has been excited to do it. Like no one has been like, eh, I don't know, really. It's always been like, yes, yes. I want to talk about this thing that we got to do that people still love. And uh, it's just been fantastic. Well, we, it's been wonderful having uh, Dino Minigan, uh, the fantastic composer for Teen Wolf uh, on the episode with us and uh, we couldn't be happier we couldn't be happier to have had the chance to talk to you Dino and we really really appreciate it yeah thank you so yeah. much for joining us thank you guys so it's much it was, it was lo- lovely uh, Kate and Calissa lovely to meet you guys great meeting you too yeah good to meet you too it's been such a great conversation and learned a lot more about the composing side of it it's just been really wonderful 
That's Absolutely great. fantastic. Awesome. Well, well, thank you, Dino. And hopefully we'll Thanks, talk to Will. you again great soon. Great to see you. Yes. Great to see you too. Have a wonderful night and, and good luck with the new baby. With getting some sleep, maybe. And yes, get some sleep. Yes. Yeah. We I'm hope. That lucky. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Bye, Dino. Bye. All right, Wolfies. That wraps up the beta section for Pack Mentality. And now we're about to dive into spoilers, not just for this episode, but for the whole Teen Wolf series. If you want to stay spoiler free for all the excellent stories to come, jump out now and we'll catch you next week. But if this isn't your first time in Beacon Hills and you want to hear more, don't move a muscle. Here comes the alpha. It's called an alpha. It's the most dangerous of our kind. You and I were betas. This thing is more powerful, more animal than either of us. I forgot how much of a fail wolf Scott was at the start of the show. It's easy to forget his struggles with him, you know, becoming a true alpha by the end of it. It's just really easy to forget that he really didn't do a great job there taking on his wolfy abilities at the start of the show. You know what would have been really cute when they introduced Liam is if uh once he turns scott just like goes up to him and like pushes over like just a little wide ruled notebook and on the cover it says lycanthropy for beginners and that would be like, great or and maybe like, wrong. like I, well i was gonna say like it starts out like 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 and then it's just like pressed out, and then it says being werewolf <laughs> and he's like i made this it's for you it has all his little notes and stuff in it that i would actually love that. would have been cute uh, yeah. that, right? that's a really cute idea that would have been and let's a go, great callback let's go back to it refilm that episode yes let's refilm that episode get everyone back together refilm it and just get the band back together for it put in that little bit of a joke. This is the start of Peter taking revenge on everyone involved in the hailfire. What do you guys think about the death of the bus driver knowing the reasoning behind it? He low-key deserved it. Like maybe not quite death penalty, but he low-key deserved it. Was it low-key? I mean, he was part of it, so. Yeah, I just said he, okay, so he technically didn't kill anyone, but accessory after the fact, when you know that an entire family, including children, has been murdered. That's pretty bad. Yeah, that's bad. It is pretty bad. It and is you pretty should bad. Feel, you should feel bad. Yeah, you are a bad person. And he dies of guilt. <laughs> he dies and internal bleeding. Right. And internal bleeding. It's a combination of factors. Yes, I feel like it is kind of you know like a 70-30 guilt internal bleeding right. thing. His organs were leaching guilt into <laughs> his bloodstream. Yes, exactly. Derek goes to see him, and he just dies. <laughs> He dies. Of yeah, like, I'm sorry. And then flat. But at least he got to see a beautiful face as he died. Oh, That's there true. you go. That's true. That's very true. But I think seeing Derek is what caused, you know, the, the extra secretion of guilt. Jackson really needles Scott in this episode. How do you guys feel about his character at the start of the show, knowing more later on about his backstory? We get good in backstory on him later and all that at the parent teacher conference and stuff like that. I mean, it doesn't justify, you know, I do think the fact that he's adopted and has this, it, it, you know, based on what his dad says, I mean, like we don't actually get any verbalization of this from, from Jackson, but his dad says that Jackson has this 
need to prove himself, like to prove that that he belongs there, that he should be there. And I, you know, and they're there in quotes being in this family, you know, that just because he was adopted into it, you know, it's based on what his dad says in that one scene. I think that's the only time we ever see his parents. Seems like his parents are just like, that's our son. You know, that's all you really get from it. But Jackson's like, I'm their adopted son. It feels like that's what he's got in his head a lot. So he's just pushing himself to prove that he deserves their love, I guess, or whatever, when it seems like he's already got it, like, you know, which makes him a tragic figure. You know, so I feel like all of that, I get a little bit of the asshole stuff. It it doesn't excuse it in any way. I mean, you can have a hard life and be a pretty good person and not just be a complete piece of shit. But with Scott, he's just like, why don't you like me? (laughs) <laughs> like what did or, I do? Or like, what's your problem? Yeah, like what's your problem? Because later on in the episode, he's like, "We can totally be friends." It's like a, t- <laughs> it's a total Ang and Zuko moment from Avatar: The Last Airbender, where Ang is like, "We can totally be friends. We don't have to be enemies." It's great, and this is foreshadowing oh, for episode two advertisements later. <laughs> yes, but for episode two hundred one, when at the beginning of that episode, there's the homeless guy on campus, and I think. Jackson does give him money or something. That doesn't sound right. No, it doesn't sound right. But for some I reason, I he, thought... I don't think that's right. He wasn't completely awful to him. Like, I think he was... I don't recall like, this. So. It doesn't matter. I, I thought you were going to say it was foreshadowing to, since this is in the spoilers section, that it was foreshadowing to Jackson becoming the Canima because his complete lack of empathy and his inability to act in a way that, you know, acknowledges other people's feelings and well-being that's what turns him into the canima instead of right. turning him into your good old-fashioned lycanthrope yeah no no he becomes aware snake person which i guess is what happens when you're a dick and you get the bite you become <laughs> aware snake <laughs> so yeah that is aware something lizard yes that is something very interesting um kate because in the I think it was the intro episode when you were talking about just the different facets to the mythology that's created for Teen Wolf and all that. And I think it's very interesting that you can bite someone, a werewolf can bite someone, but that doesn't mean they become a werewolf. It means it, it just unlocks something Something. inside of you that either is or isn't there, but that doesn't mean you're going to become a werewolf yourself. That Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen another supernatural series that does that handles it i can't think of one where that happens where you have a vampire let's say bite someone and then they become a bigfoot (laughs) yeah (laughs) like i've seen where okay the bite maybe doesn't take vampire werewolf whatever and the person Mm -hmm. dies but never they turn into something else right because that's usually how it is like in those stories where a monster bites you you either die or live and if you live you become the thing you know, but it's never been, well, if you live, you something, you'll be right. something maybe, right. you know, where it's like not, it's not a foregone conclusion. If Is that discussed in season two where they're like, where Derek's like, I totally bit that asshole, not that asshole, but his side. <laughs> and, um, wow. and, and, and he's like, but he didn't become a werewolf. And it, it does he abomination. Is that what you're talking about? Abomination. But like, I mean, I still remember. Do y'all remember? Does that get this? Abomination is the name of the episode. That's no. what she's saying. Yeah. Right. Well, yes. I mean, I think everyone just assumes uh, Derek had to be the one to bite him because Derek's the only alpha. Right. What else? He thinks he's going to get down as scared and horny. That's yeah. actually J- Jackson's expression in that scene. Yeah. It actually is. Well, I mean, yeah. honestly, you know, the very beginning of 201, 
is this fantastic shot of Jackson emerging out of the water with his shirt artfully torn. And it's like, how come all the sexy guys get bitten right on the side where it's like super sexy when you turn around and look at it? And That's it hurts, why. but you don't want it to make it look like it hurts because you're so Okay, but where would That's you, why. Where could they be bitten on those magnificent bodies that wouldn't be sexy? That's accurate. <laughs> like, okay, bite them on the ass cheek. That still, still looks sexy. That's true. It's so toned. Like, that just, that just means someone bit you on the ass cheek. Yeah, yeah. Like, not, there's I nowhere, fail to see how that's a problem. There's no, no way yeah. that's not sexy. Everyone on the show is so attractive. They are it's just, there is no wrong place to bite yeah. them and for them not to be like, oh, God, it looks so sexy right now. I mean, although, well, I guess it's just maybe the intention the foot, in this. I guess. Oh, no. I guess. Like, because I mean, Lydia doesn't look sexy after she's bit. You know, but, but she's not... bitten in the same place. She is bitten in the same place. You're right. Well, why is it? Why didn't Derek just like lift up his arm and go, I'm just gonna bite you right there? But or yeah. or I like what I like to imagine is when he, you know, he jumps down, you know, it's like what happens is because you know, you see Derek like like he like opens his mouth and like goes in to bite and we cut to black or whatever. I think what happens was is Jackson goes, Oh, oh, wait, wait, hold on a second. And then he artfully ripped his own shirt and then just like <laughs> kind of presented his hip and was like, Okay, go for it. And then Derek was like, oh, I f- this is weird. I mean, he just does it anyway. He's like, get the f- out of here. So, <laughs> just, just, get, just get out of what's left of my house. And please. then and then Jackson, like, you know, dramatically ran through the woods on his own and came to the river, just dove in. Yeah. That all <laughs> sounds very real. It all sounds right. like that's exactly what I believe this. He's basically you know, Peter. You know? Like, <laughs> Derek, he would have been so good for Peter's pack, right? Yes. Oh, absolutely. That would have been, been spot trying, on. They would have been each trying to outmood each other. Like when it comes <laughs> to stuff like that, when they're like hunting down, like people they're trying to attack and all that, like they're both trying to be super moody and cool about it, but they cheat. They're, they're basically, they're basically the supernatural creatures in Zoolander where they're having the walk off, you know, between Zoolander and other character played by Owen Wilson, whose name I can't remember, but it's like with supernatural stuff. I feel like they would actually like wingman each other because they're looking at different age brackets. So I feel like there'd actually be like, I feel like Jackson would be like, okay, I'm going to transform, hold this mirror so I can watch myself transform. (laughs) And Peter would be like, okay, man. Okay. But I'm next. And he'd hold it. And then like they'd switch. And then Peter would watch himself transform. And then I just feel like there's, there's the opportunity for a spinoff show. That's like an alternate universe where Peter bites Jackson and they just become this like horrible, totally unempathetic, self-centered, self-worshipping duo who just go places, insult people, and bring home hotties. Like that's yeah. just I would watch do. that. I'd watch I would that watch too. that right now. You mentioned that mirror. Do you think Peter left that big old mirror in the burned out hell house in case he ever transformed there? He could watch himself. Probably. Probably. Yeah. Yes. He bought it from Beacon Hills Crossing and <laughs> <laughs> He just brought this mirror with him. He's like, if I ever transform here, I'll get to see myself as we so f- not. Yeah. <laughs> I want to go back to something we talked about in the beta section. Despite the fact that I think he could have easily manipulated poor Scott, Derek never lies to him. He always tells Scott the truth. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, I yeah. mean, think about even like at the end of the season, you know, when Scott's like, will you help me protect Allison? He's like, no, why would I do that? <laughs> He's like, he's not like, yeah, totally. Just help me get out of these chains and I'll definitely do that for you. He's just like, "Uh, no, I don't. I don't see why that should be my responsibility. Her whole family hates me. They keep trying to murder me, including her. I'm just going to not. chained up to this wall. Yeah. (laughs) 
So I'm not really gonna like volunteer to like take a bullet for your girlfriend. I don't know why you're asking me to. Yeah. He doesn't, he, you know, he's, he is very infuri- infuriating. Totally agree. But he's not a liar. He doesn't lie I, about stuff. No, you're absolutely right. You're right. You know, and even, you know, later when they're like, are you going to bite Boyd? He's like, yeah, because he said he wanted me to. So I'm going to. Yeah. Yeah. Like, he, asked, he asked politely. Why so, Why would I not do that? That would be rude of me, actually. <laughs> right. He said, please, Scott, please. That goes a long way in the werewolf community, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> he's used to doing, dealing with Scott, who's not very polite to him at all. That's yeah. true. Like Kate said, he just runs in accusatorily mm-hmm. and then everyone else is like hey Derek you want to hang out and he's like what oh oh, oh okay you wait know. that was a sincere question I thought yeah. I thought you were gonna punch me at the end no oh. so. we were talking earlier about transformations let's go back to that yeah it's, it's really really great and, and, and it, it, it's it connects to what Derek says in the second season which is that the shape you take reflects the person you are and right. so several of the characters that we know, they get the bite or go th- undergo some kind of transformation and become, you know, it takes them a while to get control of it, but ultimately they become more themselves. Right. right? Jackson becomes the Canima because that's the sort of shitty person he is. But Lydia yeah. becomes a Banshee because, well, also there's a history of it in her family, but also, right. you know, she, she does ultimately through that become more herself too. Right. So the bite is a gift, but it's also a key like what yeah. you said earlier that unlocks a part of yourself that you might not have really had access to before. Yeah, no, it, it's fantastic. And I think I definitely feel like Lydia is the clearest example of that, that the bite, you know, she was already well on her way. Well, not, no, she wasn't, but the bite just unlocking you, Yes, you know, like just the potential, the supernatural potential in your body, you know, so that coupled with her own, her own personal journey of stripping away all of these bindings that she placed on herself because she believed wrongly, but believed that, she, you know, that nobody was going to accept her for the real her. And, right. um, and so to finally, and that's, that's, you know, what we get in season four or five or whatever, like when she finally comes into all of her power and all of that, she's like the most powerful super on the show and all that. It's just fantastic because yeah. it's such a great journey. I feel like all the characters on the show have fantastic journey. Mm-hmm. Every time we meet a character, I think we get an immediate sense of who they are and kind of what their fatal flaw is. And I think who they could be, who they could be. There's definitely a, a mirror image to each of them. Like when we see Isaac, you know, when we first meet Isaac with his awful, terrible, no good, abusive father, that it's just like, he's, he kind of just reverts back to that child because that's all he's known from his dad. But you know, the mirror image of that is confident and just belief in himself. Of course, granted, it goes too far, you know, and that's kind of the story of season two with, with Derek's pack is that, is that Isaac and Erica, Erica, you know, they become their better selves, but they take it too far. And I feel like that's, that makes sense because I mean, it's like, it's like the first time you drink or you find a drink that you like, you kind of maybe you drink too much type mm-hmm. of thing where it's like, they finally are not in Isaac's powerless. case. They're not powerless anymore. That's it. That's perfect. They're not powerless anymore, but then they become drunk on the power. So it's like, they kind of, they kind of become the right person they're supposed to be, but then just keep going when they should have stopped. And that's what makes next season's arc so great for these characters and for Derek where he's trying to build this pack to not let bad things happen anymore and awful bad things just keep happening because well we've already talked about all that stuff but um yeah it's it's fantastic I, I definitely think 
we on the show did a, a very fantastic job of introducing characters and we immediately know who they are again kind of what their fatal flaw is and who they could be that you can already see in them what that journey is supposed to be for the character and then whether or not they actually get there or how long it takes to get there or how terrible that 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 journey ends up being how, how terrible that journey can end up being will be but um yeah i think we did a pretty good job of that and i think lydia is a great distillation of the entire yeah. series and the one of the one of the one clearest character. examples very clear just very clear from start to finish like there's no there's really no muddy water on any of that with her and it's fantastic so. right this episode i feel like we get a stronger sense of how bold allison can be she sneaks out of her house she tells scott to think about her naked this is her feeling more like an argent as we know them and far from the girly girl she worries about being they are just like super intense people who had like a super intense child sort of who's gonna be learning all that intensity she kind of she gets unlocked too this like really deeply buried not badass because she's she is a badass from very early on see also parkouring out of her bedroom window so much flipping but but this like really intense aggression really is unlocked in in allison yeah it's definitely and and that's great because i mean that does come in season two and i do feel like a theme of that season is power Mm-hmm. And yes. powerlessness, you know, because at the end of the season, Allison's going to get put in some pretty tough spots, you know, because of supernatural creatures. And, and that kind of harkens back to a scene in the pilot when she says, I cried like a girly girl or something. And she says, like, I thought I wasn't that type of person. And then it's like season two is like, I'm not that type of person. And I'm going to learn how to use these knives. I'm going to stab the shit out of so many werewolves. And yeah, but it just seems like she, that you're right, that, that unlocking of Allison happens. You know, it's like everyone's getting, everyone on the show gets unlocked in some, in some sense, whether they're supernatural characters or human characters. And it's fantastic. One of the through lines I feel like of Teen Wolf as a show is what people do when they have power mm-hmm. and what people do when they feel powerless. Right. That's a big part of really the whole show. And a lot of the characters, the worst decisions that they make, they make them when they feel powerless because yeah. it's just one of the hardest feelings to to survive and still be able to think clearly. And we see that with almost every character. Yeah. When they make a really bad decision, it's usually because they feel powerless. And we especially see that, I think, in the second season with yeah. Derek and the Betas, especially Erica and Isaac, who Absolutely. are really angry people and are really used to feeling powerless in different ways. And so when they get some semblance of power, they just they just can't handle it, really. Yeah. They, you know, they suddenly all this like, bitterness and resentment from when they felt powerless is just unleashed on yeah. the world but it's fascinating to watch so there's that yeah i mean no i mean it's it's a good story because i mean it, it's 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 incredibly relatable not the werewolves and supernatural power uh, parts but obviously those parts aren't supposed to be relatable but what i is relate relatable, to that part as well i'm glad that worked for you um <laughs> but the thing that is relatable is that we all have felt powerless in our lives and we've all imagined taking power so mm-hmm. that we're not powerless, you know? And of course, Teen Wolf just turns again that up to 11. But the problem is, is that that's not always the best mentality to have with power because then bad things will happen, you know, that it's like, cause you've, you've overcompensate a right. little bit and then 
in their case, they're monsters and monsters are strong and have claws and teeth and all that type of stuff, you know? So it, it just doesn't really work out, unfortunately. But I can't wait for us to get to it and talk about it more because it's such a, it's a good season. It's it's just, it is, I mean, yeah. every season is a good season, but it's it's a good season. So I hope everyone listening had a great time with this episode and we will see y'all next week for episode 104 titled Magic Bullet. Nice. Ooh, oh, that's one of my, right. One of yes. my favorite episodes yes. and the birthplace of a beautiful ship. Derek River. Oh, yes. Yes, 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 yes. So we was yes. like ships. Ships? I like tall ships, all the sails He's and rudders. such a nerd when it comes to ap- actual ships. <laughs> it's true. It's it's true. I should have been a sailor in another life. But um, <laughs> yes, so next week we're going to watch season one, episode four, Magic Bullet. And this is a slight spoiler, but we're going to meet an interesting new character next week. And it's going to crack open the story a little bit wider. And it's going to be a lot of fun. And I can't wait for all of you to meet her. I don't know why I put a question mark. At <laughs> I, don't I don't know. But yes, I can't wait for all of you to meet her. And that concludes this week's episode of Return to Beacon Hills. We hope you had as much fun listening as we did talking about all things Teen Wolf. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH Podcast, as well as on Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. Don't forget to find us at patreon.com slash RTBH Podcast for more awesome exclusives. Join us here next week for a look at season one episode for Magic Bullet and listen to us have a great discussion with Laura Webb, the music supervisor for Teen Wolf. Rate and review us on iTunes. Five star reviews, get a shout out. Have a great week and we'll see you again soon on Return to Beacon Hills. Dude, it's Beacon Hills.